Welcome to the Kelly Patrick Show. Thank you so much for tuning in. In today's episode, I am joined by returning guest, Aaron Murphy. I appreciate everyone tuning in. If you are a fan of the Kelly Patrick Show, I ask that you please send some referrals the way of my sponsors. The title sponsor of the show is Louisville Combat Academy, located at 7908 Beulah Church Road, Louisville, Kentucky, 40228. They have a great MMA program, but also, even if you aren't planning on fighting in the cage, they have a great jiu-jitsu program for adults, female-friendly classes, and a great kids program also. Check out Louisville Combat Academy. Heidi Solars Coots. Heidi is a licensed clinical social worker and licensed clinical alcohol and drug counselor, specializing in treating anxiety, depression, trauma, and addiction with a mindful and holistic approach. Heidi is actually my mother, and I can attest she is a saint. Call her at 502-457-1823. Virtual and telephonic appointments are available anywhere in the United States. Veercast Digital Media. Veercast Digital Media at veercast.com. Matt McCarthy runs Veercast, and he is also the producer for The Kelly Patrick Show. They do video production, aerial drone photography, web design, and podcast production. Contact them at info at veercast.com to start your own video show or podcast. Also, my health insurance practice, Benefits Analysis Corporation. Based in Troy, Ohio, I work from my Louisville, Kentucky office. I can help anyone in the United States with their health insurance needs. I'm an independent broker for health insurance solutions for individuals, families, Medicare-eligible individuals, and also groups. I can also write life insurance, and long-term care. If you want to support the podcast, please send me some referrals. 502-386-0978. Welcome to the Kelly Patrick Show. Thank you for tuning in. I am joined today in studio by returning guest Aaron Murphy. Aaron, how are you today? I'm doing great, brother. How are you? Doing well. Our first episode, we covered a lot of different things. Yep. Yep. We did. You know, we usually talk about jujitsu every time I'm on here. Mm-hmm. Uh, talk about flying. Talk about uh, usually ask me some questions about law. You know, how's the flying going? You just came from the airport. I'll tell you what, um, today's a great day. I got to train this morning, and then I went flying. You got to train jujitsu. You taught a what is it? A gi class? No gi class on on Tuesday mornings. So Tuesday mornings are gi seven a.m. and then Thursday mornings are no gi. You teach both of those. 7 teach both of those. Seven a.m. Gracie Jiu Jitsu of Kentucky. We've also added a Monday class and a Wednesday class at seven a.m. Both of those are gi as well. So four options to train. Seven a.m. and we're looking at. Wouldn't be surprised in the next year if we added Friday mornings, but we're looking at somebody else to teach that right now, and so we'll see how that goes. But yeah, I went over to the airport. I had a plane getting some maintenance done on it, um, some avionics upgrades, and I'll tell you what: if you're doing anything in life. If you want to make twice as much money, just do it on a plane. If you're painting something, paint a plane. If you're selling something, sell a plane. If you're selling insurance, sell it on a plane. Wow, that makes sense. I mean, it's unbelievable what's going on in aviation. Imagine taking that to the next level and you look at, like, weapons of war, how expensive those are. Like uh, some weapon, you know, some plane that's going to fly to the other side of the world and, you know, uh, uh, be a military weapon. Imagine how expensive that stuff is. My God. Yeah, the cost on that stuff is astronomical, and I don't even know if anybody knows what the cost is. And I think they 
they've baked so many things into those weapon systems that uh, you, I don't even think they could give you a price. You think I could get into, involved in selling those? Maybe make a nice little uh, profit for me? Well, you know, the stuff like that's highly regulated on the private side. My dad used to f- sell uh, weapon systems to other countries. Did he? Interesting. Okay. Yeah, he did it through the Army and the State Department and uh, flew around the world building cases for the um, UH-60 helicopter, the Black Hawk helicopter. So not that much of a coincidence that you turned into a pilot. Well, it, yeah, it was bound to happen. My great, my grandfather, trained to be a pilot in World War II, did not actually serve because the war ended before he was deployed, but he was in training as the war ended. Um, and then my father was an Army pilot. My little brother is a Navy pilot flying Seahawks. And yeah. Do you have any idea how much the planes that your little brother flies, how much those cost? The helicopters that he flies? The oh, I'm sorry, helicopters. So I'll tell you, um, I don't write off. Um, my, my dad would be able to tell you. But the thing is, they've got tons of add-ons. Those things are like, you know, interchangeable uh, parts. They've got all sorts of weapon systems and radar systems they can put on them. They've got all these different models. And so each one is kind of geared towards a separate mission. Some of them do um, reconnaissance, search and rescue, dropping off special forces, uh, searching for pilots who have ditched in the ocean, stuff like that. So each aircraft is very mission specific, which, you know, if you're trying to get an aircraft, you know, a lot of people are like, well, you know, it's just like buying an SUV, but it's a lot more specialized. And so you want to make sure that you have the right aircraft for you. So recently I got a plane that... How many planes do you have now? I got three. Okay. So last time you were on, you had one. Okay. You just bought your first. All right. Well, I've gotten two more since then. And I've gotten the plane that I really want. Okay. So that's the Beach Bonanza. I've got a turbo-normalized 2007 G36 Beach Bonanza. Okay. Do you rent all three planes out? No. I rent the first two back to the flight school. And hopefully they're going to pay for the third one. Now, up to now, they've just been big money pits. They've just been dumping money into them. Because so. you haven't been actually renting them out. Well, I have been actually renting them out, but I just did the avionics upgrade. And, you know, the insurance on these things is like oh $10,000 a year on the little ones, $20,000 a year on the big one. Like I said, if you're selling insurance, sell it on a plane, right? I don't even know where you would get in. I, I, yeah, I'm sure there's... Who helped? I'm curious. How did you get that insurance? So there's lots of different brokers, but um, Mike Pratt, the guy who owns the flight school over there also Mike has, Pratt yeah he has an insurance company and so I talked to him and he's really helped me out a lot um, getting the plane stuff set up but yeah he has a a little side brokerage for the planes as well um, all he needs now is a paint shop and avionic shop and he'll be all set there's a basketball player guy who went on to play at University of Kentucky named Mike Pratt not him Yeah, different guy, different guy. But yeah, I got the plane that I really wanted, and I flew to Washington, D.C. this weekend. I flew out Thursday. It took two hours and ten minutes to get to Washington, D.C. You flew to, okay, flew to Washington, D.C. And I'm sorry, this Mike Pratt passed away last year, so he's definitely different Mike Pratt. Yeah, different guy. Um, So you flew to Washington, D.C. Is that the farthest you have flown yet? Um, Nope. No, I brought the plane back from Bentonville, Arkansas. That was... That's right. I remember. Um... That was a longer flight. Now, the longest flights I've made have been in the little ones when I brought them back from Fort Myers and Naples, but I wasn't by myself on those. So I was by myself on the trip from Bentonville back to here and by myself on the trip to Washington. Why'd you go to Washington? Uh, Pedro Sauer Conference. It was his Oh, I did birthday. see you those in those pictures. Okay. Yeah. So there was probably more than half the people that were black belts and all with a, a few stripes on their, on their belts. Um, a lot of guys from around the country did modules on... And Jeff Curran taught a bit. 
um, probably more applicable to MMA. There was a guy there who teaches special forces and police officers. He, you know, taught what he teaches them a little bit and how that works. It's very fascinating. And Caleb McAllister taught a, uh, a session that was a little more competition based, um, I would say, but then Scott Smith and Adam Miller each did a module and Pedro Sauer did a module. Very, very interesting stuff. And hopefully I can remember enough to start feeding this stuff back into some of my classes. But yeah, I was out there for the weekend. It was great, great time. Several of us um, hanging out and uh, then came back on Sunday. Um, one of the guys rode with me in the back. I won't say who it was. Someone I know. Well, it was, but I'm going to tell you a little story on him. Let's hear it. I like where this is headed. We can keep anonymity for the sake of the episode. Right. Off air, I will ask, obviously, who I'll it is. You, I'll tell you off air. Okay. So we're going along, right? We take off. It's a little it's a little tasty out there. Gusting 26, almost a direct crosswind. But we you know, get up, and we're bouncing around a little bit. So I go up a little higher for some higher air. And we started getting these icing pyreps, which other pilots reporting icing, icing, icing. So we've got to stay away from clouds anyway, but anytime the weather's cold, you definitely want to stay away from the visible moisture because it'll freeze up on your plane. So we're going along. I didn't mean to be going so high, but it just turned out that I was able to get up to 14.5 to fly over the clouds. 14,500 yep. feet and in there. It was going great. Everything was going smooth. Had my oxygen going. And all of a sudden, in front of us, I see this huge wall of white cloud just going straight up. I mean, this thing was probably going to 30, 40,000 feet in the air. And so I couldn't fly into it, right? One, because I'm not rated to fly through clouds yet. But two... You're not rated to fly through any clouds? No. Now, hopefully before the end of the year, I'm going to get my IFR rating. I'm working on that right now. But the big problem is, if you get into clouds and it's icing conditions, then you're going to lose, you know, the aerodynamic nature of your wow, plane. Wow, that sounds scary as hell. And I, you're right, and I don't have any de-icing on my plane, okay? There's some planes that have de-icing. I don't have it. Uh, so I said, we got to get out of here. So I said, I told the, I told Center, I said, we've got to do a 360. And you descent. told who? Um, Station, you, you got on the radio and you said, hey, we got to change. Yeah, uh, I told ATC that we got to. Air traffic control. Yeah, so I did a 180 and then I started descending. And as I, I spiraled down through the last hole I saw in the clouds, but I got to descending a little too fast. Oh, my God. And so my plane starts beeping at me. <laughs> critical speed, critical <laughs> speed. So I had to pull back a little bit. <laughs> I saw the people knock the tails off their It wasn't so funny when it was happening. No, nah, it was a little intense. And I went through the edge of a cloud, and I could see all what they call rain, which is little ice crystals. Just They look like little shards of light coming at you. Rain. Rain, rain icing, yeah. I was like, great. I don't want to be in this cloud. So pulled out of the cloud. I was dropping at 3,700 feet per minute at one point. Okay. Um, I looked back at the speed log in it. And on flight aware, it said I was going 250 knots. Okay. Which well exceeds the speed for the aircraft. But because I was so high, the air is less dense. So it was, I shouldn't have been going that fast. But anyway, I got it all stabilized, got under the cloud. And I looked back and... Friend in the back was puking his guts out in a bag. I can't wait to hear this. And I was like, you all right, buddy? He's like, yeah, I'm great. It is d d compounded when shit gets a little wild. If you're in the passenger seat of a car and there's any type of, even if it's not really a, a, a stressful situation, it just feels like it is. You know what I mean? 
So you can get a little more stressed out in the pet. Pa- I'm guessing you are not great in a passenger seat of a car. Okay. You and your wife in the car normally it's you driving. It usually is. But okay, I mean, but but she you, drives on long trips sometimes. We switch off on long trips. Okay, but sometimes you can get that anxiety. I imagine it's even more so compounded when you're in the passenger seat of a plane and you know it's your buddy and you know that they're relatively new to being a pilot. Maybe I don't know. I don't. I don't know what it was. Apparently, there's like, vomiting. Well, yeah, he was like, maybe it's that Thai food. I was like, well, I don't know. You're getting plane sick. But he was in the back. I put him in the back um, just for room and weight and balance. Um, which is good because he had plenty of room to throw up all over the place. But uh, Threw up all over the inside of your plane? No, he got it in the bag. <laughs> he okay. got it in the bag. Um, so, yeah, that we then we uh, had to weave our way back through clouds and thunderstorms all the way back. And it wasn't it wasn't bad. I mean, I'm making it sound like it was it was bad. It but it was a little stressful. Um, not really. I Who's mean, your flight coach? So, right now I'm training with a guy named Perry. Now, Perry is a legend, all right? Perry is 90 years old. He started flying in the United States Air Force in 1955. For context, that's the year my mom was born. Okay? So Perry's been flying quite a while. And everybody on the airfield knows Perry. And they're like, oh, yeah, ask him about the time this happened. Ask him about the time that happened. Perry's got all these stories. Okay? And so he tells me the other day, he's like, all right, well, I'm going to tell you what to do when you get into mind-bending turbulence. I'm like, uh... I don't want to get into mind-bending turbulence. <laughs> so, yeah, Perry, Perry's awesome. Um, he's been through, you know, he's been flying his whole life. He's got every rating known to man. And um, so we've been working on my instrument rating. He's the one who trained me on a Bonanza. And because I was interested in flying a Bonanza, and he uh, trains people on Barons and Bonanzas and things like that. So a guy told me, oh, you need to contact Perry. And, uh, yeah, he's great. Bonanza's a great, great plane. Probably... Arguably the best airplane for a guy who just wants a plane to fly him and his family around in. Um, because it's it's fast, but it's right on the edge of where planes and aviation start getting really expensive. Anything beyond a Bonanza is going to cost you two, three, four times as much. And airplane expense really starts going up exponentially after you get at the Bonanza level. Cause then you start getting into twin engines, turboprops, jet engines, and pretty soon that, that expense can really add up fast. What would your flight coach, the 90 year old guy, Perry, what would he say about the way you handled your situation? I'll tell you what he'd say. When you came to the, the, the wall of the big cloud, he said, you, you say, you got that exactly right. You did exactly right. But next time don't, don't go down so fast. Mm, okay. So, so you tell me, put an extra turn or two in there and just kind of, Get down a little, little less quickly. Okay, but it wasn't. You didn't butcher it, obviously. No, and I'll tell you, people in aviation are very aware that anytime you're alive, you didn't really butcher you're, it. You're okay. That's how it works. You're okay. Yeah. <laughs> every every landing you walk away from is a good one. What's your wife think of all this? You know, I think she's getting her hopes up that I'll be able to get her places more quickly. Uh, her and the kids went on a little trip this weekend, and it took them twice as long as it should have because of traffic. Traffic is just getting bad for construction you know all sorts of reasons so i think she's really looking forward to the possibility of going places more quickly and so we're planning on in december taking a trip as a family uh weather permitting and you know as long as everything's looking good um so that'll be interesting to put the whole family on one plane and fly to mississippi um definitely definitely be a lot to think about a lot to plan so i hope that goes well 
You have three planes now. How many are you going to end up with five years from now? How many planes? Because at this rate, you'll have what, 100, 200 planes? Well, yeah, there's lies. There's damn lies and there's statistics, right? I mean, um, yeah, we're not we're gonna not going to keep going at this rate. Uh, we're maybe in five years. I'll have one. <laughs> you'll have went from three down to one. No, uh, you know, you never know. We'll see how the plane rental thing goes. But um, I don't necessarily want too many more planes. Although next summer, me and Mac might go get our uh, seaplane rating. Uh, there's a little one week course over in Lexington where you can go learn to land on a land on a lake. And so we talked about doing that. That'd be kind of fun. Have a seaplane and then. Of course, you need an aerobatic plane, right? You need a plane you can do some flips and rolls in. So. Oh, yeah, of course. Is that how Roy Halliday passed? So, yeah, Roy Halliday was in an Icon A5, which is a little kind of, it's not even a plane, but it is a plane. It's a sport kind of amphibious thing that you can uh, land on the water and, you know, take off and do all sorts of fun stuff in. And there was cocaine in his system, I believe. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> was there? Yeah. Um, <laughs> you start mixing the narcotics in with the, the being a pilot. He was a troubled guy, I believe. Um, maybe a little too adrenaline-seeking. But, yeah, he, I think he was doing... Now, maybe maybe this should be verified, okay? Maybe you should verify this. But he was not doing basically straight and level flight. I think he was maybe doing some flips or some rolls, and he got too close to the ground. Um, I believe there was cocaine in his system, but... Uh, yeah, you can look that up. Um, it was it was a very sad situation, obviously. But uh, he was forty years old. He was my age. It does say drugs and stunts. Yeah, so not a good combination. And whenever you're flying, you want to make sure. So there's all sorts of decision making rubrics for whether this flight is safe or not. Look, amphetamine, morphine. <laughs> Okay. And other prescription drugs. So it could have been Adderall, maybe prescribed. Could have all been legal. Um, morphine, jeez. I don't know. So amphetamine is a, a, a... I can see where pilots maybe would get involved with Adderall and, you know, anybody who's needing to focus a lot. I can see where that would be something they do. Well, so the, the other day somebody said to me, oh, all the old pilots I know are absolute drunks. Um, and the thing is, whenever you're staying up late or trying to get up early... Um, you're staying up late, you just got off a flight, maybe you want to you know, knock the edge off, drink a few beers, right? Whenever you get up early in the morning, you're pounding the coffee, maybe it's not doing it for you. So you definitely see how you know truck drivers, airplane pilots, people like that can start thinking they need something to help them stay awake more and or go to sleep more, right? And that's a dangerous combination because every decision-making rubric in an airplane and aviation starts and ends with the pilot. And so there's these point analysis like, if the flight's going to be this, then add three points. If the flight's going to be that, add three points. And so how many points do you get to the end? And that's how dangerous. As so, a general rule of thumb, you probably lay off the cocaine at least for a day before you fly. You know, I've laid off the cocaine for a long, long time, buddy. I haven't uh, done cocaine in a little over 20 years. So right before you got into trouble, you were just kind of, the last episode we talked about, you were a little bit of a party animal, but since you got out of prison, no, no uh, relapses into the crazy stuff. Yeah, no, we've kept it pretty, pretty sane since then. And I'll tell you what, I mean, for me, and I, I don't, you know, I'm not a, a drug rehab counselor or anything like that. My uncle is actually, but uh, my mother is. Oh, cool, cool. Well, she, you know, she might know better than me, but you know, part of the whole rat park experiment, right? I'm sorry, the what? Rat park experiment. They, you know, give rats drugs. And oh, give them play, I things see. to play with. Give them, you know, they isolate them. Give them this toy, that toy, that drug, that drug. You know, let them, you know, isolate them. Um, a lot of the rat park experiments pointed towards, and this 
was sort of um, played out with soldiers coming back from Vietnam is that a person or a rat who is addicted to drugs or using drugs will replace that addiction with positive things a lot of the time if they, they have, can. If they, if they have that right. access to that. But the problem is drugs isolate you, right? I mean, when you're doing drugs, you're only hanging around with other people who do drugs. Mm. And then you're stealing from each other. You're, you know, um, then you're isolated from other people who do drugs. And then you're isolated, isolated. But if people are have other things to do, right, and other things they feel are positive, that will help them. And I'm not saying this is just like a, you know, Works, right? Does it work every time? time. Right, because you know the person needs some support, needs some some tools to deal with those situations that are getting get them into those relapses, and it also depends on the person. You know, I mean, some people can uh, you know have relatively easier times than others, but um, yeah, the reason I don't do drugs now, and the reason I don't even you mean you don't do them like today? Yeah, I mean, maybe maybe a couple days ago, but no, no. The reason you don't do any now is because you're very occupied. Right, yeah, not because I have other things to do. Makes sense. It's not because I'm like, oh, well, you know, it's not even because I'm like, drugs are bad. It's just like, drugs are counterproductive to what I want to do now. That makes sense. So if you said to me, hey, I I love doing drugs, I'd say, great, good for you. Hope that's working out for you. And I I would mean that. I wouldn't be being sarcastic. Mm. Um, You know, and so sometimes I drink a little bit, and sometimes, you know, I'm like, ah, you know what? I'm flying tomorrow. And there's nothing wrong with drinking the day before you fly, by the way. But I'm like, oh, I want to be extra sharp tomorrow. I've got something I'm looking forward to. You know, and so sometimes I'll say, eh, nah. But yeah, when I got back from uh, DC, I had a little little bourbon. Um, you know, just what kind of bourbon? There's actually maybe maybe I um, I think it is bourbon. It's four gate. It, it's either bourbon or whiskey, but I had four gate number four, I believe. I hope someone's listening and they're like, four gate is not Bourbon. That is Tennessee whiskey. Yeah, that's the problem these days. Is there's so much stuff that people are selling that is meant to be bourbon adjacent, near bourbon, um, but they're trying to cut uh, cut corners on how it's made. And so it says they are Kentucky straight bourbons, um, okay. Okay. finished in Spain, aged in dark rum casks from the Florida Keys. So they do call it bourbon. Okay. okay. But it looks like there's something going on in Spain, something going on in Florida, but I think it is technically bourbon. So, yeah. Okay. All right. So, yeah, just had a little bit of that, but um, for the most part, I, yeah, don't drink as much as uh, I did during the pandemic, which is good, but yeah, still a little bit. I'm probably going out for my wife's birthday in a couple of days, so probably have a couple of Manhattans. Okay. Last time we recorded an episode afterward, we discovered we were both. I guess you could say, uh, at least interested in hearing what RFK Jr. had to say. Yeah, interesting guy, interesting guy. And I'll tell you what, um, not not many people these days are open-minded enough to hear from everybody, right? They Even you bringing up RFK. Now, some people are like, oh. Conspiracy theorist. Well, yeah. I'll tell you what, I was having lunch with a buddy of mine. And this guy I've known since law school, he's a lawyer, and... Uh, nice guy, even kill guy. And I said something about, yeah, I listened to the podcast with RFK. He's like, oh, he's a, he's a racist. That's racist. what he said. Oh, yeah. And I said, I wonder what he means by that. I said, really? What? I mean, I haven't heard that. I mean, I've heard conspiracy theorists, you know, I've heard people say, you know, he's anti-vaxxer, which he claims not to be. And I don't think he is, but, um, he is a lawyer. Who's- he did say one thing about how the, <laughs> I think there's some evidence that COVID impacted certain groups 
more than others. And he said, I think Hasidic Jews really haven't been impacted as much. And people took that as like, well, <laughs> what? You're saying the Jews must have created it? And, you know, his grandfather, RFK Jr.'s grandfather, uh, Joseph Kennedy, was anti-intervention uh, prior to World War II. And he was like, relax, guys, we don't need to get involved. Hitler, he might be a bad guy, but we don't need to get involved. So he's downplaying the significance of literally Hitler. So for years, the Kennedys have been, by their critics, called anti-Semitic, but he, I don't, don't really think he is. He was flying, I mean, I'm not even a fan of this. He was in a f- <laughs> parade flying an Israeli flag like a, a week after he was accused of being anti-Semitic. So I don't think he dislikes Jewish people. Well, Larry yeah. David is his best friend. He's like, Friends with all these Jews. So in that conversation, as we continued on, I, I talked a little more with my buddy. And then he said, you know, I, he might not be racist. I, I don't even know why. <laughs> well, at least he came to that. That's somewhat honest. Well, yeah, my buddy's a reasonable guy. But okay. you hear things and people say things and we don't have time to listen to everybody. Right. And hear everybody out on everything. So you've got to use these little shortcuts and that's why stereotypes exist and Mm. it's not like all stereotypes are bad it's just ones that have to do with human beings and classes of human beings are you know if i said ah oak is always oak is always hard type of wood be like well you're stereotyping oak trees there Mm. i am actually you know and if you said well yeah but what about willow oaks and pin oaks and you know i'd be like well i mean i think they're all hard right i didn't test every single one of them but um anyway stereotypes yeah, I mean, I I like RFK because he's a lawyer, because he's interesting, because I think he's thoughtful. And I'll tell you, I liked Bernie Sanders when I heard him on Joe Rogan, too. And it's not like I agree with his policies, but I listened to what he said. I listened to that also. It made sense why he was saying it. Okay. okay? Now, I'm not saying we should all be socialists, but I understand why he was taking the positions he was. Okay. And I actually saw him. Bernie? On a, yeah, on a plane. A few weeks after that. Me and my wife were coming back from Minneapolis. He was on the campaign trail, and he was on a Delta flight. We were on the Delta flight. I went up to him, and I said, Mr. Sanders, I heard John Joe Rogan. It was very nice. He shook my hand. He's like, oh, okay, thank you. You know, and um, so I, I, I think RFK is a neat guy because there are people in this country who are scared of conversations because we don't want to acknowledge that there are more than two voices and more than two mainstream voices, and you know, I had this conversation with my dad not too long ago, and he was like, third-party candidates are always bad. And I said, no, I think they're great. I, I want more third-party candidates. And he said, yeah, but you're just diluting the vote for the one that... And I said, if I'm... You know, you've told me for years we're just choosing between the, you know, lesser of two evils. Well, I don't want to choose evils. I don't like evils. Your, your father had used that terminology. Yes. Lesser of two evils. Come on, Aaron, just vote lesser of two evils. Right. And he wasn't like consciously saying you need to support evil, but you kind of ended up saying, Dad, I you're the one who said that. Right. And but that's not just my dad. That's everybody. Sure. Everybody is in you know, if we sat down and we talked to anybody on the street, we said, Hey, who do you like? And they'd say, Oh well, you know, I'm voting for Biden. Well, but what about this, 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 this? Well, I mean, yeah, but he's not the other guy. Or if we talk to somebody and say, well, I'm, you know, I'm voting for, you know, anybody in the name of the wheel of field, the name on the other side. And you say, yeah, but what about this or that? And they say, well, yeah, but he's not the other guy. And our system is set up to create the problem. All right. A two-party system creates the problem that we compromise at the ballot box. Okay. And then the two parties in Washington go off and do whatever they do. I've... 
played around with in my head the idea that maybe we should switch to a parliamentary system. And I'm not saying we should. I'm just saying I played around with that idea in my head, okay? So parliamentary system, there are lots of different parties, right? There's a Green Party, there's a Labor Party, there's a Socialist Party, there's a... Those all three sound similar to me. Right? right? Green Party, Labor, Socialist. Right. And then there's a, you know, conservative party. There's even more conservative party. Okay. There's, and so what happens is you get to vote your one issue. Okay. So say you're really about the environment. Okay. okay. Say, and that would make you in our, in our system a what? Wow. That's a good question, actually. It'd make you Democrat. Okay. You would think. Right. But, it, but, but, but some cases can be made that some of their solutions are not necessarily... Uh, but yeah, it does. Well, it, to, just being honest, yes. If we got to talking about it, you'd be like, oh yeah, the Democrats aren't really for the environment. But you would say that's kind of one of the planks, right? Sure. So if you were pro-choice, you'd be a Democrat, right? If yes. you were pro-union, you'd be a Democrat, right? Yeah. Okay. So if you said, Aaron, my thing is, I just, and I had somebody tell me this, okay? They said, I'll always vote Democrat because I just couldn't stand what... And I don't know who it was. It was... Um, I Ronald was, Reagan. No, it's what Dan Quayle said about an owl. He said about the spotted owl, okay? I think it was like... And I said, okay, cool. I mean, I understand why you're saying that. You've articulated a reason, but are the Democrats going to really protect the spotted owl? Now, in a parliamentary system, you would vote for the Green Party, okay? And the Green Party would say, we don't care about any other issue but we are going to go to Washington and we're going to negotiate green issues into every bill. We're going to negotiate green issues into all the policies here or we won't be in your coalition, right? So in our system, you went to the ballot box, pulled the blue lever because you're a green guy and the Democrats took you for granted ever since, right? Same is true with conservative Christians, okay? If you're a conservative Christian, you vote for who? Republican. Okay. Do you think the Republicans care about the conservative Christian vote? Mm, yes, certainly. I would say no. Okay. Here's why. Because they Oh, because, because they, they already the got it. It's what are the they going to do? You show me a Baptist preacher. I don't even need to ask them which way they're voting. Right. It's in the bag. Okay. I see what you okay. mean. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. It's in the bag. And so- They start to neglect that group, man. Absolutely. Inherently. Absolutely. And they're not stupid. They're just trying to win. Right. They're going to push the- edge of the plank okay if you're pro if you're pro military who do you vote for historically it would be the republicans right i mean this is so formulaic that when these guys are sitting in a room thinking about like okay what kind of talking points do we put out yeah they'll put a talking point out that says hey we believe in this we believe in that but they're not going to spend any time advocating for those groups because they take them for granted okay and that's what i've try to tell people like you know and i just use my dad as like the quintessential person but it's the same argument is like hey if your vote was in jeopardy, if you might go vote for a third party, if you might go vote for the other person, then the people who you want to pay attention to you, who you want to support, would start paying attention to you. They don't care unless they have to. Unless they st- tactically, their advisors are saying, wow, the, if you're a Republican, we've lost you know, however many people to voting now libertarian because we're not good enough on the eco- economic issues that they care about maybe. You're like, we're losing these. Okay, well, now we need to pander a little bit to them. Right. Um, but, you know, the solution, I don't think, comes from one of the parties or the other. I think, I think the structure is the problem. Because everybody always thinks, well, yeah, but if we just got this guy in, into office, he could fix things. And people were looking for Barack Obama to fix things. People were looking for Donald Trump to fix things. I mean, 
Biden. There's a lot of Democrats who say Biden's doing a great job and they're happy with what he's done. And so, I mean, it, it goes all ways. They, you, now, tons of people are saying if Trump was in office, none of these wars would be happening. Trump's going to save us. It's always that way. It is. And, you know, everybody's on a political talk show talking about, well, yeah, but if this guy could get in power and, oh, well, if he could have done that and if someone else hadn't stood in his way, the system is sort of perpetuating what it was designed to perpetuate, which is not much change because our founding fathers believed that human beings were inherently flawed. And I don't know if they thought we were inherently evil, but that we're inherently flawed, that power corrupts. Okay. And they'd seen that happening through generations and generations of monarchies. Power corrupts. And so we've got to keep everybody checks and balances. Checks and balances are the name of the game. The problem is our government is so big now. It's so big that the right hand doesn't know what the left is doing. And so it's perpetuated itself to a point where, you know, everybody's like, well, we're already going down the road. We may just keep going. We need a bigger government, a bigger government, and a yeah. bigger government will save us. Both and sides are doing that. They are, and they've been doing that since uh, Ronald Reagan really spearheaded that. He spearheaded uh, the rhetoric about how it needed to be a small government. Yeah. Exactly. But the, in reality, he grew the government larger than any president had prior. He did because he wanted to outspend the um, the Soviet Union and break the bank on the Soviet Union, which he ended up doing. But to get the Democrats on board, he had to expand the social program. So he broke the, all right, let's see, the years. What what year was like that? Um, Chernobyl, 86 or 87. So they, at that time, shit started going bad, really bad with the Soviet Union. A combination of things, but you're saying it was in large part Reagan, Margaret Thatcher coming together, being anti-communist, led to the, the downfall of the Soviet Union, maybe? Well, I think the Soviet Union ran out of money. Okay, right? economic and issue. You were, said that last time. They were propping up Yugoslavia and the other, um, you know, Cuba, Czechoslovakia, and other states. And um, they actually did some military in intervention, um, I think it was in the 70s, maybe early 80s, when those states kind of started waffling on them. Well, in, I think it was around 89, they said, hey, we, we have got no more money for you. We can't keep propping you up. And... I, I, it was either Yugoslavian or Czechoslovakian president, I think, called up Boris Yeltsin and said, well, if we start doing our own thing, are you going to send tanks? He said, no, I'm not. The whole Soviet Union set, fell apart. That's when it happened. Was it Boris Yeltsin or Miguel Gorbachev? It was Gorbachev. Okay. Yeltsin came in afterwards. Yeah, okay. After the breakup, um, Yeltsin was the first... Uh, first person there. And then they had like perestroika and glasnost and all these new policies and it basically fell apart. Well, I think perestroika and glasnost were before that. Oh, they, okay. Okay. They were some, they were some truth telling. They were some kind of resets that they tried to do before that because um, I think their economists realized that there were some problems and their politicians realized there was some problems and they, they wanted, you always want to roll out fresh starts, right? I mean, fresh starts for your people and get everybody back on board. And, that you know, we've done that in this country, you know, several times. I said, okay, well, we're going to do different. We're going to do better now. And so Soviet Union tried that. Um, and it, it worked a little bit. I mean, I think Glasnost worked a little bit. I read a um, book where um, by a guy, Michael Malice, who calls himself an anarchist. He was born in Ukraine, but he's, I think, 45 or 50 years old. But he, his book was basically making Miguel Gorbachev into being like the greatest hero ever. Because in a way... Soviet Union disintegrated pretty peacefully. It did, and I think, and you know, I, I don't know more about Gorbachev than you know any regular political science major, but 
I think he was. You are a political science major. I was in college, a major Very in cool. political science, matter in economics. I have a law degree. Um, so I have looked at this stuff a little bit. Have looked at politics of you know Eastern Europe and you know other other places around the the globe. And they're always told through a lens, right? I mean, you're always sure that's somebody's lens. But I did, you know, I studied with um, economists who had studied on Fulbright scholarships in the USSR and explained, you know, Soviet economics. I'm not saying that I'm Next. up on it, but I was in the same room as geniuses. I mean, I'm not a genius, but I was in the, You've studied in the same it. room You've as studied geniuses. You've studied it at least, yeah. Um, so I think that it's very, very complicated. Everything's complicated, sure. But at the end of the day, the more complicated things get, the more they repeat themselves. And the more, more room for simple. bullshit. Like, let's try to keep this real simple. If you and I are friends, and I'm like, hey, Aaron, why are you being rude to me? Or you looks like you stole something from me. Like, ah, oh, there's more to it than that. Like, hey, I don't think so. Let's just try to keep this real simple. Let's just, just you know, for an economy, we're making a certain amount of money. Let's not spend more than that. The more complicated or nuanced you could say it gets, the more room for manipulation well there's a lot of manipulation and that's one thing that people always try to think about is that they're in a new era that we've never been in before okay and they say we can break the rules now and this is new economics and keynesian economics and you know new school economics and everybody's got this new type of economics and they say oh well this isn't going to happen anymore the thing that i believe we've seen again and again and again is that economics are always right you just don't know when Mm. so you cannot time when the bad thing is going to happen, okay? So we print a bunch of money. So oh, there's going to be inflation. It's going to be inflation. There's going to be inflation. And then the inflation never happens. And then the next president gets hit with it, blame for it, or who, who knows even? Sure. I mean, yeah, right. They, like, where, where's the inflation right now coming from? The big, the big surprise to economists after 2008, and they bailed out all the banks, was that we didn't have massive, massive They're just kind of like, I let's try this. Uh, uh, we'll see how this goes. Literally, that's basically what, and then they're like, oh my God, uh, used cars are so expensive now. What happened? Well, that was what happened, you know, this time we had supply chain disruptions. And so then they, you know, the criticism back in 2008 was you printed all the money, you gave it all to the big guys in the banks, which is why it didn't trickle down as quickly into our economy. Now they said, well, this time when COVID happened, let's print all the money and give it to the guy on the street. Well, that did cause inflation, right? Oh, Just like you expected okay. to. And I'm not saying that they're always in a tough spot, right? Of course, you know, we can always armchair quarterback and say, well, they should have done this and shouldn't have done that and shouldn't have shut this and shouldn't have printed that. At the end of the day, they did one thing right. And I will give them credit through COVID. Through COVID, through the financial crisis in 2008, is we have not had a financial crisis. We've had economic crises. Okay. And we've had... A ton of other crises, but the lesson they learned from the Great Depression is never again will we have a financial crisis. Hopefully never again, because at some point, what about bricks? What about the U.S. dollar losing its value? All of a sudden, you're like, I got three planes, and I'm like, who gives a shit? How much is that worth in rubles? Like, I don't even know. Oh, shit, those are worthless. Ha-ha, gotcha. So, I mean, that would be a crisis. Well, it, it would be, but see, it's actually more of a problem if... We're on an asset-backed currency than if we're on a floating currency. Okay, so how so? Okay, back in the day, back in the twenties and thirties, we were on a gold-backed currency. Okay, Which, prior to like Brenton Woods in seventy-two, Nixon took us off of it. Exactly, and people have been crying about it ever since. They've been, oh, we need to get back to a gold. That's what currency. created the Libertarian Party in nineteen seventy-two. Was well, Nixon taking us off the gold standard officially? I think in like nineteen something earlier, it was. 
taken off, but it wasn't practically done until I think 72. The problem is if you do not have money, you can't exchange things, right? So they backed it with gold, but gold is an asset. Gold is something that takes work to get, right? You've actually got to mine it out of the ground. You've got to uh, store it. You've got to you know, have it in a way you can carry it around. You've got to carry it with you. It's an asset. It's not pure currency, but it's been used as currency since the beginning of time. Well, the problem is if I come to your house and say, you know, Ryan, I've got some, you know, I've got a car I want to sell you. You say to me, well, that's great. I don't have any money. Okay. But, you know, I've, I've got something that I can exchange for money. I've got, uh, you know, I'm skilled labor, you know, I'm the best podcaster in the world and I can run some podcasts. So I'm going to go sell some podcasts. And so you go to somebody and say, Hey, um, you know, I want to sell you some podcasts. And I say, we don't have any money. Not only do we not have any, we can't get any. So they go to the bank. The bank says, we don't have any money. Saying, what do you mean you don't have any money? Can't you get some? Can't you go to the government and get some? The government says, yeah, we don't have any money. Say, what do you mean you don't have it? You're the government. They say, well, we don't print the money. It's gold. If you don't have gold, and this is why the feudal system broke down, is because if the king didn't have gold, he couldn't pay the soldiers to go fight, right? So the king had to hoard the gold. If he used it to repair all the roads and, you know, the gold was in, you know, in Nick's house and over Mike's farm and everywhere like that. If the king didn't have the money, then he couldn't pay the soldiers to go fight, right? And so they run into financial crises where you might have something to sell, but nobody has any money to buy it from you. And what they figured out in economics is the money supply has to equal the goods and services in the economy, okay? Okay. So if you start having a really productive economy and start producing all these goods and services, but there's still the same amount of gold that you're using as money, then the gold becomes more valuable and it's harder to get, right? Sure. And so everybody that has gold says, well, I'm going to wait till tomorrow and I can buy more stuff with this gold. You ended up having deflation. And deflation is much worse than inflation. So they're like, okay, we need to get more gold. We need to print more gold. We, need to pr- we can't print more gold. You got to mine it. You got to get it. So that's why you got to go conquer your neighbor to get his gold, right? Makes no sense. So basically, you're doing an asset barter system, which is gold being one, the critical asset. And that's what happened in the financial crisis in the 30s is all the banks ran out of money. They didn't know where to get more. So now the government just says, well, we're going to print money. And you can go to the discount window and you get money. And the money is backed by what? The full faith and credit of the United States government. Exactly. Is that good or bad? Oh, always good. Well, I mean, I mean, it's the most valuable uh, currency in the world. Right. And it works. Still, fortunately, knock on wood, hopefully it stays that way. It works. Into the next year. And I tell people all the time, and nobody knows what I'm saying when I say this, is money is imaginary. Now, in 1930, you'd say, no, money's gold. Mm. I get a silver certificate. It's good for one token of silver. But if you have only, you know, a million silver certificates and you've got $2 million in goods, then you've got a problem. Okay. So it wasn't a bad thing that we decoupled our currency. The problem is, the government prints too much of it. There's just no system in place. It's like, hey, uh, we'll print some. Uh, we'll do some T-bills. We'll uh, borrow some more money from Japan or China. No big deal. We need money. Uh, we got to send money to Ukraine or to Israel. We need to do this or that. We need money. How are we going to do it? We need money. And there's no system. There's no like each year you can do this amount. There's no graded 
system. It's like we got $33 trillion, I think, of debt right now, and, and that doesn't even factor in the new money that is printed. That's, that's So there is a system. It's a decoupled system, though, okay? Because we've got Congress who uh, makes the appropriations, but then we've got the Fed who tries to rein them in and control them, okay? So when Congress prints more money and says we're going to borrow more money and puts it out there, well, then Jerome Powell says, ah, oh, well, i got to raise interest rates then, which makes it more expensive for Congress to borrow the money. So it's kind of like this... I don't want to say it's the tail wagging the dog, but it's it's this decentralized system where Jerome Powell ought to look at Congress and Joe Biden and say, you got us into this problem. You can fix it. Sure. And the way they could fix it easily is by relaxing regulations for us to produce more goods and services. Okay, So we still have a ton of tariffs in place for steel with China, which I don't disagree with. I mean, I think that was not a bad thing. Uh, we still have a lot of anti-drilling and anti-fracking rules in place that get relaxed each, you know, each different colored, um, you know, administration. And then, you know, the next administration puts the moratorium on pipelines and drilling. If we opened up the American economy just a little bit, and they could easily, we'd produce more goods and services. And so that would float us up to equal the amount of money we've got sloshing around our system. Wow. You sound like a, 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 a advocate of a Norwegian type uh, system because they actually have very little regulation over there for certain industries, although they do have the social safety net and things like that. Well, yeah. And I mean, Scandinavian countries are interesting to study. I mean, I think they're a pretty bad thing to copy because they, they're it's kind such of a, a small scale too. They are in the, a unique position. They all took over their oil revenue and it's like Alaska now, you know, they're all getting checks because they've got, you know, large oil reserve, which is great for them. It's just, you can't implement that in Boston. I see. Um, but, but it is somewhat similar because it is a system you're describing with lax regulation to a degree in many industries, which would encourage industrial growth. Right. And we could work our way out of this problem, but instead we're going to, um, you know, raise interest rates and potentially wreck our economy. Yeah. And that, that happens 50% of the time they get it right. And 50% of the time they wreck us into recession. And the, the difficulty though, is that Every time they want to do something, there's so many unintended consequences. Every time the government wants to print more money, there's just so many unintended consequences. And they're like, well, we'll clean that up down the road. Every time they want to borrow money, there's unintended consequences. They'll just clean that up down the road. Every time we want to go to war, unintended consequences, we'll, we'll clean that up down the road. And so we're creating all these negative externalities that everybody else has to clean up. And then everybody else has another plank in the platform. But don't worry. They're going to come up with another government office for that. Okay. So recently, Joe Biden created the Office of Gun Safety, okay, to stop people from, you know, using guns for violence, all right? And I will tell you, uh, we have too much gun violence in this country, okay? All right? Now, if I say that to you, what what does that make me? Blue or red? <laughs> that is a blue blue, blue thing to say, yeah, Definitely right? blue. That's a blue thing to Although, say. Although, you know, Trump was red president. He banned bump stocks. I mean, there's a lot of... Um, that is... Uh, yes, it's blue. It's a blue thing to say. It is, but in reality, um, I don't think it's weird to say that drugs are killing too many people and guns are killing too many people in this country. Okay. Now, I'm a person who really, if we were just sitting around talking, I'd say, I, I don't think drugs should be illegal. I think everybody should have access to... We're all grown adults, right? If you... But then you look at society and the wreck it's caused. and I But mean, the current system does not have legal drugs. Right. It has caused a wreck. You're right. But then, if but we, what are we comparing here? Because the current system does not have legalization of drugs. Well, it doesn't. Does it? But 
it does have a little bit of decriminalization of drugs. Okay? Of marijuana, but what else? Mushrooms, those aren't even the problematic ones. Now, most most cities are not cracking down on hard drugs. Really? On possession of drugs. No. I'm, and I'm not being sarcastic, I didn't know that. No, a lot of cities have kind of relaxed. I guess that does make sense. Some of the cities have heard about them, you know, um, San Francisco or something, you know, d- criminals kind of able to do whatever they want. We've got a lot more permissive. We're doing needle exchanges. We're doing safe spaces for open drug scenes, which we call homelessness the wrong thing. Okay, Homelessness is not homelessness. Those are open drug scenes. There is no such thing as a person who got behind on the rent and now they're living in an encampment and they just don't know where to go. And they're looking for a job, but they're living out on a tarp under the bridge. Oftentimes, drug abuse coupled with some bad mental mental uh, illness. Mental illness is real, and drug addiction is real, and a lot of times there's some overlap, right? And the people who are compulsively and wrongly compassionate, which is basically just they don't want to do anything with the problem, and so they're just like, hands off, let people do whatever they want, let them shoot up heroin, and you know, live in open drug scenes, they are not facing the reality that it's drugs and it's mental illness, okay? It is not hard times that is causing these problems. I agree with that because this country's relatively, compared to other countries, you know, even the poorest person here at least has some opportunity to survive. Well, the re- I mean, the research backs that up. I mean, I know a lot of people w- want to say, oh, well, it's just it's just people having hard times and you're being unmerciful. No, it's unmerciful to allow a person to live under a bridge with open sores on their body. I mean, Yesterday I was downtown in Louisville. There's a guy with his pants around his knees, all right, out on 4th Street, like just naked in front of the world, and he is incoherent out of his mind. I've had a guy living behind my dumpster, sores all over his body. That's horrible. Like not able to understand English, and it's not because he wasn't a native English speaker, okay? I mean, smelling from 10 feet away. Wow. And the thing is, it is not merciful. It is not loving to let him stay that way. Okay. And so, you know, and I don't know, this may be just a, a crazy aside, but our, our country doesn't do the middle ground well. You know, we lock people up for life for small amounts of drugs and really, you know, small stuff, or we just let people get away with murder. Mm. We don't have a system that adequately looks at the problem, and treats the problem. Now, do I know what the solution is? We have seen some models that have ostensibly worked. Example? In Portugal, in Holland, in Switzerland. They have developed models where drug abuse was not overly criminalized. Now, drug abuse is still criminalized in those countries. It's a thing we've missed. And so a person is offered the opportunity to get community-based services, or continue to use drugs. And in a lot of situations, they're given clean drugs. But they always have to make the choice. Hey, do you want to get clean today? Hey, do you want to get some services today? Do you want to get your kids back? Or would you rather do drugs? And the person says, hey, you know, well, today I want drugs. Say, All right, here you go. Well, there is, uh, there is, that's not a pleasant thing you just described. No, it's and, horrific. And not many people hear it and they're like, wow, that's a perfect system. <laughs> but... If someone's going to get clean, they have to be on board every time or they're not going to get clean. Right. A person. And so in Switzerland, in in Holland, in Portugal, they have had a small amount of people who have not gotten clean. 
and it's a very small amount of people. What happens is if a person is a lifelong drug user, some people do need, they say, a maintenance amount. However, that's not a 24-year-old. That's not a 24-year-old who's been doing heroin for four years. They don't need to be on maintenance heroin for the rest of their lives. Maintenance heroin being a methadone clinic, Suboxone, what do you mean by that? I mean giving them heroin. Okay. Like they don't need to be on a small dose so they're okay. Um, I have heard that there's a few people still in those systems who are still uh, using some drugs to keep themselves low. And it's provided by the government? That's what I understand. Interesting. Now, the problem with our drugs is one, drugs, but two, dirty drugs. And it's pretty horrific what's going on out there with fentanyl. And one of my best friends died last year. We do to this day, just he's my age. He's died. Best friends from high school. Just died. Well, I'm pretty sure he did some cocaine with fentanyl. I don't know though. Well, I mean, this is what happened with Tom Petty. Tom Petty right? had a bad back. He was like, I need a, I need a pill. One of the roadies had a pill. Oh man. I mean, it's supposed to be just, you know, Lortab or Oxycontin or something like that. Had fentanyl in it. Jeez. Tom Petty's dead. Wow. Now, is Tom Petty a bad dude? No, I he's a great dude. Not based on what I know. Yeah. yeah, I mean, but, I mean, did he even make a mistake? I mean, it's, you could see anybody doing that, you know? Oh, yeah. It's, if they're being honest. Sure, you could now. That. Now there are people listening. Like I've never done any drugs. Maybe they wouldn't do that. Yeah, I get it. But 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 you you can't tell me someone in your family that's a good person wouldn't be susceptible when in pain to say, "Hey, you have something that'll help me." I mean, what, does that make you a bad person? I don't. I don't think so. No. Um, but the problem is not red or blue. I mean, but our system is set up to be a you know a dichotomy, and it's set up. And I don't. I'm not sure whether it's not a reflection of how we are or it's not creating how we are. You know, we, we respond best out of fear. We respond best out of anxiety. I get these texts, you know, the political text, and they always start out the same way. Aaron, I'm worried. Our country is facing blah, blah, blah. And for me personally, I made a decision. I'm not going to make decisions based on fear. I'm, mm. not making, I'm not making decisions based on anxiety because the decisions you make on fear and anxiety, they are the best decisions you've made in your life or the worst decisions you've made in your life. Which one? Normally the worst. Yeah, I mean, you don't make good decisions when you're stressed out, but they want they want you to be stressed out. They want you to be anxious. Oh, no, guess what would happen if so-and-so got elected? It would be bad. Well, I mean, we've been having bad presidents for a long time, depending on who you listen to. If Trump's elected, democracy's over in our country for good. If Biden is elected, communism, full-blown communism. Well, and, and if RFK is elected, I guess, you know, who knows what will happen, right? If RFK is elected, it'll be illegal to see a doctor. <laughs> well, but they want you to make these decisions, knee-jerk reaction, right? Because we've all got to run from the bad guy. And that's a horrible way to make decisions, right? That's a horrible to make, way to make decisions when you're fighting. You know, like we learn in jiu-jitsu, you got to stay calm, right? Mm. It's a horrible way to make decisions when you're um, purchasing something. It's a horrible way to make decisions when you're pulling a lever at the ballot box. We got to think about things, and you know what? We've got to we've got to be able to be open minded and say, you know what? Um, we've tried this, we've tried that. We'll try something else. You know, um, we've got to have a faith in our system, faith in our world. But um, I don't know. We we might be create. We might have created the system because of how we are, or the system might be exacerbating how we are. Mm. Uh, something that you never want to take for granted is the system could be causing the problems. And so 
you know, maybe the solution is not within the current system. What prompted this political discussion was I asked about RFK Jr. Prior, our previous episode, you and I recorded. After recording, we discovered we both like RFK Jr. Since then, he has parted ways from the Democratic Party, right? He has, yeah. He just launched an independent bid, which is interesting because he's a he's a likable guy for a lot of people, right? One, he's got the Kennedy name. Two, he's if you listen to him, he makes some sense. Um, which is sort of scary because the last time we had a credible third-party candidate, I'd say it was Ross Perot. 92. Right? And I'll tell you, there's still some people who blame Ross Perot for a lot of things. Do you know the, do you know the rumor behind why Ross Perot ran? I don't think so. He's a billionaire, right? Yeah, he was mad at George Bush about something. So he got Bill Clinton elected. He was mad about something, and it, it was actually, what the story I heard, and I don't remember it well, was it was actually kind of stupid, but... George Bush had slighted his daughter or something like that. And for, for a position or for, I don't know, it, it's, um, but he said, I'm going to get you. And he ran the campaign. Now, I don't know if that's rumor. That might be total rumor. And Ross Perot might be sitting here with his big ears thinking, no, I ran because I was going to make this country a better place, Aaron. Maybe that's a good, pretty good impression. Thank you. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of people who say, well, George Bush Sr. would have served two terms. Now, you always play the what-if game, right? Well, then what? You know, would you know, Bill Clinton have run after that? Would it have gone straight from George Bush Sr. to George Bush Jr.? And we just have Republicans all the way down? <laughs> Is that what would happen? Yeah. Um, common sense would tell you probably not. Probably not. But, you know, like one of my law school professors said, well, if Bill Clinton hadn't have, you know, been, you know, these debaucherous scandals. Yeah, I don't know what to call that. I mean, basically, I think today we would say that is predatory. par for the course. <laughs> well, we'd say it's predatory sexual behavior and oh, okay. an imbalance of power. Him using his political position to take advantage of a young a young woman with no, no Inter- political power. Internet, right? And you know, back then it was just like, oh, oh, yeah. I mean, he's having a he's having a little affair in the office. You know, I don't think the Kennedy family is innocent when it comes to those types of things either. Well, you know, the Kennedy family had the luxury of not having such a a well-developed news state, although I believe it was, I believe that at times the intelligence organizations did probably um, cover them as close as they would be. Well, I, I think they threatened to expose, you know, certain things. I heard they didn't that, do yeah. this and that. Um, you never know. Bobby Kennedy Sr., the uh, Hoover was telling him, I think J. Edgar Hoover was telling him he's going to tell his wife about Marilyn Monroe or something like that. Yeah, I heard, I've heard stories he like that. He had pictures of him with other women, I think. I've heard stories like that. And you never know what's true, how much is true. But the point being is, if if this, then that. You know, we always, always think there's no such thing as unintended consequences. There's always unintended consequences. Mm. And the thing is, how how much are they, how big are the unintended consequences going to be? And so that's what worries me every time the government wants to do something. It's like, we're going to do this, and it's going to be great. We're going to do that, and it's going to be great. And it's like, well, yeah, but who's thought about the unintended consequences? Consistency with you today, for me, is you just were emphasizing the um, what that unintended consequences always happen. And the reason I say that's consistent from you today is because you said earlier, which could be labeled right-wing conspiracy theory jargon, just so you know, that you don't think RFK Jr. is anti-vax. 
what, in reality, what he's doing is he's saying, and it is, it's the unintended consequences. He's saying, guys, I don't think, you know, that, what is it, the um, chicken pox vaccine is bad necessarily. What I do think is we need to know, does this cause shingles? In England, they don't allow it because it causes shingles and that's more dangerous. So we need to be real. we need to really have a structured system where we're like, these are the vaccines, okay, maybe it eliminates chicken pox. What does it, that, what's the unintended consequences from that? Yeah, we've gotten to a point where, you know, the other day I was saying something to my daughter and she looked at me and said, Dad, this isn't the 90s. And I laughed because the 90s seemed like yesterday to yeah, me, right? Yeah, me too. Yeah. Uh, this weekend in, D- in D.C., I went by the house that my family used to live in when I was uh, younger. I was, you know, 10 to 13 when we lived in D.C. and my dad was at the Pentagon. And um, that's where I got chicken pox. And I got chicken pox from the girl next door. And it was planned because when her family got chicken pox, my mom called her mom and said, hey, why don't you send her over because my kids need to get chicken pox. Um, you know, people would be a little bit, you know, aghast at that these days. You intentionally infected your kid with the disease. People used to do it all the time. You know, people used to use cowpox as a way to inoculate themselves against smallpox. And now it's unacceptable to get sick at all. But if you look at it, I mean, there's all sorts of theories out there that because we don't get fevers anymore, uh, because we don't exercise our immune system anymore, it's causing other problems, unintended consequences down the road. And so um, as we adopt new things, we shouldn't be surprised that there's unintended consequences, right? You should expect that every everything you do is going to hopefully do what you're intending for it to do. But that there could also be something else that comes from it. So you should at least be try to be aware of it. Well, right. If I told you, hey, there's this medicine that is great. It came out and it has no side effects. <laughs> would you believe me? What if I said there's a zero side effect medicine? That would sound like fit. Yeah. That would it sound would sound like, like I was lying to you. Definitely right? lying. Okay. So if we can accept that medicines have side effects, then taking 50 more of them sounds like it might have some things we should be watching out for you're a, a lifelong democrat no i wouldn't say that um i would say i was raised i was raised in a military family pretty republican your dad's um, a republican <laughs> I, I think that's a safe bet um i am a registered democrat i've been a registered democrat for probably close to 12 years now um, based on your understanding of what it means to be a democrat in this country you're a fan of rfk jr i am a fan of rfk jr and Here's why. Because I think he's thoughtful. I think that he articulates his positions well. I think he's willing to be challenged. He's willing to challenge others, and which is obviously the underdog is always willing to do that, right? Um, if we had somebody who's already on top, if we had Joe Biden here, he would not engage on the issues. And it's not because, I mean, it's because that's the smart thing to do. Sure. It's the smart thing for the guy on top not to debate. In this system. Right. Because he didn't have to. Right, they got why nothing, Trump's nothing not going to the Republican debates because he doesn't have to. Nothing to gain, sure. nothing to gain, and so that's what I appreciate about Bernie Sanders and RFK Jr. is um, not that we would agree on everything, but I think that I mean I think probably, and I don't know, RFK Jr. might agree that we need less government. I don't know. I mean, you know, you get Vivek Ramaswamy in here, and he's like going to you know cancel you know five or six agencies the first day in office. That's what he, he said. That, he right? said he'd remove seventy five percent of the federal federal employees day one. And other than that would, you know, put a lot of people out of work. I don't necessarily see that that would be a bad thing. Okay, interesting. I, I mean, because at some point, 
then here I'll tell you one one thing I think the government ought to do more of is put sunset provisions in every law. Okay, we have so many laws, and you can go back and be like, man, look what this law says. I've heard that some it's, laws in certain states are yeah. real weird. Oh yeah, well, there's no spitting on sidewalk laws. There's no walking down the street with an ice cream cone in your pocket laws. I mean, there's all sorts of weird laws, and you're like, why is that a law? Now there were reasons for those laws, by the way. I mean, the reason you can't spit on a sidewalk is because tuberculosis was out of control, mm. all right? Uh, one to two to three percent of the population had TB infections, and you're spitting on the sidewalk, you're spreading TB all over the place, right? I mean, it's not because they want to keep people from looking on the sidewalk. Was that a way to spread TB, spit on the sidewalk, someone steps on it and they get it? No, but what happens when the wind's blowing? Okay. And those, those little saliva particles are blowing. Probably right not there. very likely, but still, that that was the ration. When they made it, it you sure. know. Um, but... If they put in that law, hey, this law automatically expires in 10 years unless we decide to re, um, reenact the law. I think that would be a better way of doing laws because now we, we're always passing new laws and we still got all the old laws, whether we need them or not. Yeah, yeah. At some point, you should. And a lot of times they contradict each other. Well, sure. I mean, there are, it's impossible to know what all the laws are. I'm a lawyer, I'm telling you that, okay? I know the law in a very narrow, very narrow area. People come to me all the time like, yeah, but what, what about this? What about that? I don't practice in that area. So it's no better if you're a lawmaker. The lawmakers don't know all the laws. You know, and they got to get these research assistants to find out this out and that out. And then, you know, what happens when this is unconstitutional or is that, you know, against this or that? Um, yeah, our, our system of government is getting a little bloated and too big because we can't know what all the laws are. If you can't know what all the laws are, you can't follow all the laws. I had a guy who was the president of a bank, okay? His name was Alan. And uh, great guy. He used to be the president of a bank. And he was sitting down with, he said... Greenspan? No. He said, Aaron, you cannot be in banking. You cannot run a bank without violating a banking law. Mm. And I said, what do you mean? He said, there are contradictory banking laws. And so if you're following one, you're breaking another. And I said, well, I mean, I don't understand that, but... It sort of makes sense with, you know, with everything we've got going on. And I think that anybody who is very technically savvy in any area that's federally regulated will probably tell you the same thing is, yeah, it's hard to follow all the regulations. If they're being honest. Sure. Yeah. yeah. If they're actually trying, you know, they're telling you the truth. They're like, technically, that's why these charges against Trump, I've heard some of them describe as being a novel or even the stuff against Biden. The impeachment stuff against Biden right now. A lot of them are like interpretations of laws, and you're like, what law did they break? Oh, well, there's this, and they, I think they call them sometimes like a novel legal theory, and like, yeah, we haven't charged anyone specifically with this version of that, but theoretically, we think he violated this. Well, there's always new ways of trotting out old laws or existing laws, right? And so the novel legal theory is that nobody has ever been prosecuted that's based what, on this before. That's what that right? means. Okay. And now, I'm not here to tell you it is or it isn't, because the thing that I love about this country in our system of justice is that you get to bring in 12 members of the community. Mm. Jury to, trial. You get to put it in front of them and say, is this or is this not? And I'll tell you one thing that may be a little different about me is when there's a trial in another part of the country, O.J. Simpson was the first big trial in another part of the country, okay? That you paid attention to. Well, that they really rolled out and had rolled out a long time. But we've had other celebrity trials, right? What about the Lindbergh kidnapping? I guess that wasn't a trial, was it? Um, no, no. I'm just trying to think of old ones. That was like 100 years ago. I know. I'm just trying to think of... Sign that wasn't even a trial. It was just a baby disappeared. Well, I think they eventually prosecuted the guy. Oh, okay. They so there was a trial, but it wasn't yeah. the same. I was in 
middle school or uh, elementary school during OJ. They were putting it on TV in our school. Right. But when that verdict came down, everybody was upset because they knew OJ did it. Now, not everybody. There were some African-American people who were like, he's innocent. Well, and it, some of them have since John Sally played in the NBA for years. He's like, okay, I got carried away. He did actually do it. I was celebrating that he got off, but he did it. But guess what? I'm here to tell you. He was found not guilty. He's not guilty. And I'm okay with that. Okay. He was found not guilty. He's not guilty because there was not sufficient actual evidence. We don't know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he did it to this day. Well, the, is that what you mean? The standard is beyond a reasonable doubt, right? Okay. But our justice system is also predicated on the fact that we would rather 10 guilty people go free okay. than one innocent person go to jail wrongly. Okay, okay. okay. So we've had other trials. We've had Casey Anthony. We've had George Zinnerman. We've had um, you know, a lot of other trials that have happened around the country. And everybody knew George Zimmerman was guilty. Everybody knew Casey Anthony was guilty. Both of them were acquitted, right? Now, you're going to say you're happy that both of them were committed to? I'm not happy. Acquitted. I'm not happy. I'm okay with it. You're okay. And you're not happy that OJ got off either, no, although you happy. believe he probably did it. You're just like, there's no such thing as a perfect legal system. If we're starting from that standpoint, there's no such thing as a per- perfect legal system. What we can do is the best that's possible, and then hopefully it will minimally incarcerate innocent people while, when warranted, when the appropriate evidence is met, sufficient evidence is met, everything comes together, prosecuting guilty. That's a good way to put it. And, you know, we've seen other cases, though, where, you know, Derek Chavan was sent to prison for 20 years. Is that right? 20? And I think, I think actually probably more on the federal case. You know, he's prosecuted in state and federal. That seems even people who are right-leaning are like, well, yeah, he should... He's guilty. Most people seem to think Chauvin's guilty. But here's the thing. I don't, I'm not okay with that because I think. Okay? I'm okay with that because I trust our jury system. Okay. And the jury there made a verdict, okay? Now, I wasn't there. I don't know all the things. You know, when uh, you know Kyle Rittenhouse was acquitted, there were people who were upset. And then, you know, the people who were like, oh, well, I didn't know that. And I didn't know that. I guarantee you there's so many things about these cases you didn't know. Sure. That the jury didn't, you know, that maybe the juries did see or they didn't see. I am okay, okay farming that decision out to 12 members of that community. I'm not saying it's always right. I'm not saying that, but I'm not saying that I always know right. I am not perfect. I am not God. I don't know everything. I am okay saying, well, the jury in LA made a decision about OJ. Okay. I mean, think about that. A black man was on trial for killing a white woman. Mm-hmm. 92 or something. 94. Right. Now, that would be a nightmare scenario for somebody in you know Mississippi in 1964, right? Sure. It's probably I mean, been less of a trial. Right. But guess what? The fact that all the country is like, oh, he was guilty. But that jury says, you know what? We don't see it. He's not. I mean, you know he got a fair trial. He was found civilly. Yeah. So, yeah, and I'm... I'm I haven't really followed the um, what happened there. I knew, do know that he was found civilly liable. And I will say this. I also believe, and it's not karma, but I also believe that there's like certain laws that, of the universe. And if you're not a great person, you're not going to have a great life. And I would not say that OJ's life after that was all a cakewalk. Right? I follow him on Twitter. He provides some pretty good insight and analysis for the NFL these days. Okay. People are always commenting on his tweets. Cutting edge uh, analysis, OJ. 
Great work. You know, just read the comments and it's all something to do with way to take a stab at it. And just like all of it is taunting him. So I'm not on any social media. Okay. okay? I'm not on any social media. I never see anything that anybody posts or anybody says. And I'm very happy with that. I've been off of social media for over five years. Over five? I remember when you were on. Wow. Yeah, over five years. And the longer I've stayed off, the easier it is to stay off. I don't think if you pay me a million dollars, I'd ever go back. Million? Yeah. Tax-free, a million cash? I don't think I'd ever go back. Wow. It's just a waste of time. It's a waste of time. It's meant to... What if you make money from it? Is that a waste of time, Aaron? You know, I've... I've had I think Scott of- Smith said he enjoys Instagram because it's entertaining. Facebook, it helps him with his business. So he, That's why he stays on Facebook. Business reasons. Everybody I've talked to says, oh, I wish I could get off, but I got to do it for business reasons. I would say, well, you know, pay one of your employees to... To do that for you and then still You'd say it's off. a net negative still. I think it is. And I think that more and more people are admitting that. And more and more people are being honest about that. Like I just scroll and scroll because you always think it's going to be, you know, I heard something really funny is that um, most people, and they did a statistic, and maybe it's not most, but maybe it's 42% of people. If they were having sex, okay, in the middle of having sex and their phone buzzed because it got a text, yeah. there's a significant number of people who would stop having sex go over and check their phone but you still have a phone and if you i do but i know how to set it on do not disturb you do you anytime i text you i get a text aaron is driving please and i'm like he's just covering his ass i get it he's a lawyer so it it texts back and says i texted aaron on the way here and i said great he said hi i'm driving with do not disturb turned on i'll see your message when i get to where i'm going and i will get back to you as soon as i can thanks yeah, and you know what? I have never, ever, ever missed a text that was so important. I believe that. That I need to stop having sex. I believe that, yeah. I mean, it's true. So the point is, though, our minds are meant to always think that there could be something out there that I need to know. There could be something out there I need to know. And it's kind of a fight or flight reflex. It's kind of a protection mechanism, right? So that's why you're scrolling. Just in case there's something out there. Just in case. Just in case, you know, that ex-girlfriend posted something. Just in case that, <laughs> that guy from if work If you have an ex-girlfriend something. on your feed, that's a different story. Yeah, what kind of story is that? Like, that I do think, boundaries-wise, if you're married or in a relationship and you're like, oh, I'm looking at my phone. Huh? Oh, oh, my ex-girlfriend posted something. I do think that could be an issue. Well, it could be. I mean, I guess it depends if the relationship was really over mutually or if, uh, you know, it's still... I guess it depends on the situation. So, but yeah, the the thing is we're always thinking there's going to be something else special. But you know what? That's accurate. If I cultivate my day right, if I curate my day right, I have the special things to look forward to because that's what I'm going to go do. I believe you. I believe that. I believe you do some fun stuff. Well, I do. And, you know, I, I do that on purpose. I do that on purpose because I want to give a good example to my kids that you can have hobbies, you can have fun. I thought life was over after 25 when I was a teenager. I was like, Nobody I knew who was over 25 was doing anything that I wanted to be doing. Really? Interesting. Well, I mean, you know, everybody I knew had a job, and they hated it, you know? Everybody I knew was, you know, under stress, was complaining, was, you know, getting divorced, was, you know, having to, you know, just paint their house all the time. Take out a second mortgage, you know, financial stresses. Yeah, but, I mean, it's okay. You, You can get beyond all that. You know, you can have a life where you do things that you look forward to. Um, and I think we've also gotten a an incredible level of 
um, shared affluence in this country. Shared know? affluence. Okay. I think, you know, I think from 2015 to 2020 in this country was probably a golden age. Interesting. Right? Um, and worldwide in, you know, between 2010 and 2020, so many people were lifted out of poverty. It looked like we were going to solve the problem of poverty. Okay. And things now were going- poverty, sorry to interrupt. Poverty is an interesting word because what is poverty to start with? Well, a slight scale of definition. My wife's but- definition is probably different than yours and mine, right? She actually has days in her life where she had to go without food against her will. Is that poverty? Well, I would say it is. I mean, I think the UN has a, a standard, but it, I mean, it's good to note if you make $34,000 a year, you're in the top 1% of people worldwide. Okay, that's what I mean. That, that, is that accurate? That is the last If you make 34000 so yes. I am worth, I like to be transparent, I'm worth, between my wife and I, I know this isn't much, but about $200,000. If I sold everything, maybe two fifty. okay? That probably makes me a what percentage of wealth in the world? Well, for sure in the world, like probably upper 1%. That's what I mean. You know? Okay, so if someone talks about wealth disparity and stuff, I'm like, hey, you're talking about me. I'm, and I don't feel like I'm living a crazy, like, you know, but okay, so sorry to hijack your point. So poverty, uh, you, were, you were saying it between 2015 and 2020, golden age, looked like we we're going to eradicate poverty. Yeah, and then, you know, we've taken some steps back. We also, and this is worth noting, um, I think between 2010, 2015-ish, and you, know, you can look this up on Google, our net emissions as a country for carbon dioxide were falling, all right? We were actually slowing down the rate of, and I think actually negatively producing carbon. And it probably wasn't a result of some crazy government regulation or anything. It was advanced technology or... It was advanced technology as we were switching our coal-fired plants to natural gas. Okay. And natural gas is a much better fuel source, all right? Um, methane is a more potent greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide, but methane breaks down more easily in the environment. Okay. okay. So if we just start spewing methane in the air, it's not good, but that methane will break down um, more quickly than carbon dioxide, which stays around for a long time, right? And so just because we were getting more technically efficient, we were reducing our greenhouse gas footprint, which then was helping us with all these green-based policies like the Paris Climate Accords and things like that. Um, but, you know, now I've heard through, you know, Biden's new infrastructure plan, we're going to actually switch a couple of those plants back to coal instead of keeping them on um, natural gas. So that doesn't make sense. But... So you're saying you disagree with the move back to coal? So I will tell you this. If, if you want to talk energy, anybody, you can, you can tell whether anybody's serious about talking about energy by this one question. What are your thoughts on nuclear? Well, you know whether somebody's serious or not, don't Is you? Is that what you're going to say? Yes. What are your thoughts on nuclear? Um, I think we probably need a lot more of it. I wasn't that impressed with RFK's answer on this. He kind of I don't know what his answer was. Pussyfooted a little bit around it. Oh well, then he's being a politician. And he's a politician, so I'm not even saying, "Oh God, what a piece of garbage." I know he's a politician. Family of politicians. So you were going to say what I said? It's what are your thoughts on nuclear? It's dangerous, though, right? I mentioned Chernobyl. What about Rose Island? What was that? Or not Rose Island? What Three was Mile Island. Three Mile Island? So look, um, all all the casualties in nuclear power are less than any single one hydroelectric power problem that you can point to. There's wow. been tons of hydroelectric failures that have killed more than 100 people at a time. Can you repeat what you just said and, and maybe use different words? Okay. More people have died from many individual one failures of one hydroelectric 
plant. That's water. That's using water to produce electricity, okay? There's been many instances, more than you can point at, that each one of those instances has killed more than all the people ever killed or injured by nuclear combined. When you say nuclear, what are you referring to? I'm referring to anything Hiroshima, that's, Nagasaki? Everything that's not a bomb. Okay, okay everything okay, that's okay. not a bomb. Okay, okay. Um, attempts at using nuclear for goodness for humanity, obviously, which is different than war. Right, and the problem is we we got really scared of nuclear, and we didn't bring another nuclear power plant online for 40 years. And I've heard there's another one going up in Wyoming. Right, um, I'm not really up on that. Who would be funding that? I mean, I don't know. Probably a probably a utility company in Wyoming. Um, Interesting. And of course, you know, maybe the federal government give them a grant, but I don't. I don't know the specifics. Okay, okay. so I'm not gonna not get into that. But we have advances in technology. Right, there's ways to make it smaller. Nuclear waste is a problem, but it's not a huge problem. Unintended consequences exist. Right, couldn't pretend that nuclear is a perfect solution to energy forever. You're not suggesting that. Uh, but compared not, to the other options, it's uh, certainly the closest to perfect. I'm not not suggesting that. Okay. okay. I'm not not suggesting that. So Germany used to have a ton of nuclear plants, right? They shut them all down. And guess where they get their energy now? Well, Russia. Getting, they were getting it all from Russia, right? And then we, someone someone blew up the Nord Stream pipeline. I, who, who knows who did that, huh? This creates a lot. Must have been Mexico. It creates a lot of problems. And you know what else creates a lot of problems? And we've said this, you know, since we were worried about the Japanese manufacturing in the 90s. We are worried about, you know, uh, supply chain disruptions here and there. It's a problem if you're buying your energy from another country. And it's not because you don't like that other country, okay? That other country might be great. We might be getting all our oil from Canada. We love Canada. We're always going to be friends with Canada, right? Even though they're little socialists. We might be importing it from Mexico. You know, we used to get more oil from Mexico and Canada than from anybody else, right? They were our biggest oil trading partners. And that was before we figured out that we could be the world's biggest producer of oil if we wanted to be. Did you know that, by the way? I did not know that. Did you know that we could be the world's biggest producer of oil if we wanted to be? We have more oil locked in the oil shale than in, that is in Saudi Arabia. And we can get it out now. We can frack it out. Now, fracking is a bad word, right? What are your thoughts on fracking? I mean, I definitely... Because the, I already have you labeled as a right-wing conspiracy theorist by what you said about RFK earlier. Okay, Let's sure. let you dig your grave even deeper. Well, I definitely think we need not to be afraid of things, right? I don't think we need to Consistent be Consistent with what you said earlier. Right. Don't make decisions based on fear. But I think we need to be smart about it. I think we need to look at, hey, what's the best way to do this? We are some of the best technicians on earth with doing complex things, okay? If you want to buy a plane, where do you want it to be made? I don't know, actually. I'll ask, I'll, I'll, I would literally call you if I needed that answer. I mean, probably a Boeing, right? Okay, where's that made? I mean, up in Seattle, Washington. Okay. But Boeing makes some of the best planes in the world. Raytheon makes the best planes in the world, okay? Um, Raytheon, very wholesome company. Yeah, probably part of the military-industrial complex, like probably one of the key founders, right? Ah, who cares about that? They make cheap planes. They make good planes. I do. I hate the military-industrial complex. Do you really? Yes, I think they... Profit related to it, killing innocent people. You don't like that. If, if innocent people are going to be killed, it's, it's, you, you do not want your dollars going toward it at all. The problem is with if you got a toy, you got to play with the toy. And if your toy happens to be a missile that's killing thousands of people... That's a lot of unintended consequences. No matter what you say, no matter what justification, every time you push that button, a lot of people are going to die, and there's going to be lots of unintended consequences. Um, you know, Madeleine Albright was confronted by the amount of 
Iraqi civilians that were going to die in the Iraq war. I think I've heard this quote, what'd she say? She said, well, we've thought about that and it's an acceptable risk. Kind of like the uh, Stalin or uh, Nikita Khrushchev. It was Stalin who's attributed to saying one person's death is a tragedy. One million people's death is a statistic. Yeah. Right? And the thing is, it is a statistic when you're on the other side of the world and you're not caring, when you haven't met those people, when you haven't talked to those people. And you know what? There are a lot of people in this world who I don't want to be neighbors with, okay? There's a lot of people in this world who disagree with me and think things that I think are abhorrent. There's people in this world who've taken machetes to their neighbors and they're still alive in that neighborhood where they slaughtered their neighbors today. Mm. But I don't think that those people deserve to be bombed. All right. Even though we, I mean, you can paint the most extreme picture of the other out there. Muslims treat women bad. You're not saying that we don't need to kill them. Is that what you're saying? They treat women bad. They don't like gays. I mean, yeah, that's nothing. In Afghanistan, the amount of child rape That's that goes yeah. on, like our soldiers were conflicted on a daily basis because of the amount of child male child rape that was male going on. Male on yes. male child rape. That is not that is not an isolated incident. That is a part of life in Afghanistan. That's a difficult pill to swallow. Talk about people making decisions based off emotion. You let someone hear that. You say, Hey, child rape's a big deal. Male on little boy, huge deal in the Middle East, accepted in a lot of places, but we shouldn't view them as our enemy. <laughs> That's a difficult sell. You can ask any soldier who's in Afghanistan about this, okay? Annie Jacobson, in her books, writes about this, and she quotes an Afghani special forces soldier. And he was asked, why, do you want to, why did you want to be a part of the special forces unit? And you know what he said? Oh, God. He said, because you get raped less. You get raped less. Yes. In Afghanistan, male-on-male rape is not, is not a aberration. It's not a rarity. It is an accepted form of life. Now, I, you know what? I'm not even making a value judgment, even though I could and I, w- I would. But that's not why I'm saying this. You're allowed to. I'm making allowed to. a value judgment is one thing. But I'm saying that's different. That's not a life that I understand. That's li- not a life I'm going to understand. Or you're not sympathetic to. No, I'm not. Yeah. But when 9-11 happened, I was young. And I said, we need to go over there and we need to scorched earth like to handle business full disclosure me too entirely but guess what i changed my mind when i don't know sometime over the past 25 years you've kind of been like whoa I mean, <laughs> maybe we got a little carried away maybe we didn't even accomplish anything well you know i'm afraid of that and i'm afraid we don't learn and you know what i would hope i look i'm willing to be as dumb as a rock i am the dumbest person out there i i want to be around smart people but I don't want to be a person who never learns. And, you know, they say history repeats itself. Some people say history rhymes. Some, I mean, I'm looking at the same thing over and over and over Would again. you draw a parallel between 9-11 versus the attacks on Israel the other day? Well, I'm glad you brought that up. The attacks on Israel, horrific, horrific attacks. I mean, I've talked to some people and they don't even understand what is happening, but Hamas fielded a group of terrorists to come in and execute about a thousand Israeli civilians. It was like a peace rave. It was people dancing. About 300 people were killed at that, oh, okay. at that place from what I've heard. And they used parachutes with little motors on the back, came in with automatic weapons and executed them. They've taken over a hundred hostages, innocent women and children. And they've told Israel, every time you bomb us, we're going to execute a hostage. Mm. This is horrific behavior. 
that's perpetrated by terrorist thugs. Now, the problem here is the whole thing is layer caked in to the whole Palestinian Israeli situation. They, there's a history there? They, there is a history, and it's not a great one. It's not a great one. And it is not one that anyone has been able to come up with a solution for that's been acceptable to both sides. Now, I will say that it's, be, I mean, a lot of it, and the Palestinian Authority and Hamas has really hijacked the situation for years and years and years. All the leaders of the Palestinians have used the plight of the Palestinians as leverage while they've created a situation that is untenable for everybody in the world. Okay, And I'll tell you that the Palestinian negotiators, and I think it's important to separate the people leading the Palestinians sure. from the Palestinians. That's fair. I've met a lot of Palestinians. I've never not been impressed. You know, I've... Really? Yeah, I mean... So you're impressed, you, you have been impressed when you meet people, from Palestinians. Well, I'll tell you, going back to something we talked about last time, one of my cellmates in prison was a Palestinian. Wow. We called him Sheikh. Mind, mind sharing, sharing with me what he was in for? Uh, yeah, it was a drug conspiracy. I mean, he said it was basically like he knew some people who knew some people and it... Federal prison. Yeah, and he had a five-year um, sentence. But he told me that, you know, he had a bunch of brothers and a couple sisters, and when he was in Palestine, it was just what you did. You went out, you threw rocks at the Israeli police, you just got into trouble. He had a bullet scar, he had a knife scar. He said, yeah, I mean, we would just get into fights with the Israeli police. And I said to him, well, how did you feel about, I mean, what, what were your thoughts about it? About what? Israelis. Like, what, what do you think about them? Like, okay. And he gave me, you know, what I think is a very a stock answer. He said, I, I don't dislike Israelis. I don't like, I don't dislike the people. Israel. He said, I, I dislike Zionists, you know, Zionists. And that's, you know, that's the word that a lot of Palestinians use for people who, and I think if you got down to it, um, you don't want to advance a Jewish state, which, you know, the Jewish state is there. Israel's there. Um, and the problem with all the negotiations is Israel has offered the Palestinians basically everything. Everything. At one point, they've been given everything they've ever asked for. Except. Including a two-state solution. Including the two-state solution. 2006 or something. Except the starting point and ending point of every negotiation with the Palestinian leadership, okay, and I'm separating leadership from people, is, oh, and by the way, we do not acknowledge your right to exist. Mm. So the fact that there is a state called Israel is a non-starter for the Palestinian leadership. And so no deal can ever be made. So they are not acknowledging the right to the, of the Palestinians to exist? No, the right for the Israelis to okay, exist. Okay, that's, what, that's, that's what I've heard about. The, okay, but, but, but would an apartheid, the word apartheid, be accurate to describe the way the Israelis have treated the Palestinians recently? I would say no, and here's why. Okay, and I mean, of course you can always draw similarities, and there is an oppressed... There is an oppressed people group here, and there is a people group here who has more power, right? So, I mean, I see why the comparison is drawn. Here's the difference I would draw, okay? 20% of Israeli citizens, citizens in the state, the country of Israel, are Arab. They vote in elections. They have full rights. They are Israeli Arabs. What percent was it? 20%. 20%. 0% of the people in the Gaza and West Bank area are Israelis. 
So what is possible is it's possible for Palestinians to live in a Jewish state, but it's impossible for Jews to live in a Palestinian state. They'd be killed pretty quickly. I mean, you can draw that inference. It's probably. Okay. So this is a bad situation. Doesn't sound very peachy. It's a bad situation for everyone. Okay. And it's been a bad situation for a long time. And I'll say the poor Palestinians have really borne the brunt of bad leadership from their own leaders. Mm-hmm. I mean, Hamas has been the most successful leadership group in the Palestinians, okay? And Hamas is a terrorist organization. Clearly. Like, not Unless yet. those videos were all fake that we saw. No, I mean, before that, they yeah, were. Yeah, they've been they're a the, terrorist organization. They've been on the list of terrorist they're organizations. They're bragging about since it. They, they brag right. about it, yeah. And so, if a terrorist organization is your best leadership that you've ever had, and I would say it's objective that Hamas has been the best Palestinian leadership. The most potent, at least. Now, and maybe people say, oh, well, Yasser Arafat. I mean, and I guess Yasser Arafat was a pretty effective leader mm. in a sense. But these folks, Yasser Arafat and the Hamas, are taking advantage of the situation, taking the aid money, you know, using it for, you know, and taking support from Iran. So the problem here is that. Somebody thinks, and I don't know why, because I don't think like this. Somebody thinks that by fomenting this problem and continuing to punch Israel in the mouth, continue to rock, uh, launch rockets, it's going to be some advantage to them, right? Yeah, that's a difficult thing to wrap my head around. Like, what do they think is going to happen? Already is happening since the attacks this weekend. What did they think was going to happen after that? Well, right. And I think it's probably a miscalculation. Um, You know, they say that Osama bin Laden believed that after 9-11... He was going to cause the United States to crumble, cause the United States to oh, lose. Okay. And I've heard that objectively he said, yeah, I, I, I messed that one up. Well, and you think, well, what were you thinking? Well, he was thinking with imperfect information, right? He was in a vacuum. And same thing with the folks in Iran. You know, the Iranian leadership is probably not thinking the same way we would think. And we would think we're thinking open-mindedly, you know, objectively, Western democracy, the fact that I just said those things, open-minded, liberal thinking, Western democracy, he would say that I deserve to be executed. And I'm talking about the Ayatollah, right? Because I am way outside whatever he... In Iran. Yeah. I mean, the Iranians you know, believe that Israel needs to be a one-bomb state. Yeah. And that means genocide, murder, mm-hmm. right? That means... And that's obviously what they basically attempted to to do the other, they were trying to kill as many people as they, I mean, it wasn't a one bomb, but they were trying to kill as many people as they possibly could and to be as flashy and flamboyant with it as possible. And look, I never ever bring up the Hitler word, right? I don't throw on Nazi. I mean, everybody wants to say, Oh, this is Nazi. That's not Nazi. But I will tell you this, that a terrorist attack on innocent Israelis because they're innocent Israelis is is pretty close to trying to do what Hitler did. Sure. I mean, you're trying to wipe out Israel. Now, of course, somebody say, "Well, and it I'm I'm disappointed in a lot of the a lot of the response that, you know, we heard out of Harvard and other places. I'm just, since this weekend, you mean? Oh, yeah. We're recording this on a Tuesday. You're saying since Friday when the attacks happened, you're yeah. saying you're disappointed with the 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 releases you've seen well the harvard you know harvard students came out with this thing and said well this is a problem that the israelis created and blah 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 and well you, know, you could see that stance right didn't they create israel in 1947 i mean are, is are, that wrong are there good people on both sides of this is that what it is are there very genuine people on both sides of this 
I would say that probably there's uh, a bunch of victim, innocent victims, tons of Palestine. Like you said, the people of Palestine have been killed and everything. So Israel, Israel did. I mean, where where did they come from? Why are they in Palestine? So, yeah, I, I, are those good questions? Or I mean, what? well, no, I I don't think it is a good question. Here's why, and everybody always wants to go back to this. Um, you know, would would we create an Israeli state again today if we had to do over? I mean, that's a stupid question. Like, the Israeli state has existed for almost 100 years. And the reason was we needed a place for the Jews after World War II. I mean, that's what eventually, that's what... The United Nations, so England, United States basically came together and said, all right, here's a home for the Jews. It's right. in the middle of Palestine. Fuck you guys. This is where it's at. They didn't exactly say that. I mean, it was sort I mean, that's not exactly wrong, but here's the thing. The Palestinian area were provinces that were basically ruled by the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire fell apart. Okay. okay. And then another empire, the United Kingdom, came in and was ruling these territories. They were not individual countries. Okay. And so for us to say, oh, well, it shouldn't have been this and it shouldn't have been that, we could say that. But taking our little bag of morals and ways that we do things in, you know, 2023 back to 1944 is only going to make you disappointed, is only going to make you upset. Because if you took your little bag of like the way we do things now in 2023 back to anywhere in 1944, you would you would lose your mind. I mean, things were different. I'm not saying they were better. I'm not saying it was right. I'm not saying it was wrong. I'm saying right now, as we sit here, you have a problem and it is disingenuous and it is avoiding the problem. It's punting on the problem to go back and say, well, the real problem was back in 1944. Okay, I mean, if I agree with you, does that fix it? It certainly does. Yeah, <laughs> right. I mean, but 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 what brought us into this conversation is interesting. After hearing your description of the whole thing, because you said that September eleventh, two thousand one, you and I are about the same age. Attacks mm-hmm. were like the unity in our country. I don't care if you're Democrat, you're Republican. We all came together. Mm-hmm. We're like, there's a bad guy. Fuck that guy. Let's get him. We all came together. I supported it big time. And then we transition to this topic, okay? Okay, so if I'm ben- Benjamin Netanyahu, who is a very skilled politician, who's been around for a long time, who's known as a little bit of a hawk, a hardliner, right? A little bit of a hawk. I mean, right? Yeah. And who almost has a 100% mandate to do whatever he wants. Sure, and the point. United States will basically support everything. Well... We give them more money than we give any other country. We do. And I'll tell you, you know, Joe Biden came out and said that Israel's right to defend itself is unequivocal. Now, I'm going to tell you, and I I mean, I'm being a little bit funny here, but if Joe Biden had gone to all his advisors, right, and he'd say, guys, give me two or three, uh, give me two or three responses to this, this thing, they would give him a paper and it would have one thing on it and say, you cannot say anything else but this, right? Didn't say what? Israel's right to defend itself is unequivocal. So that's why he said it. And I'm not saying he didn't. He wasn't being gen- ingenuine. I'm saying there is no other response. I wouldn't. I wouldn't disagree with that. You you get that attack. Obviously, there. I mean, it's a suicide mission. The people who did that, they're going to get attacked. Innocent people are going to be killed. It's going to be ugly. We may not see the footage of it this way. It may not be broadcasted to us for whatever reason. Tons of innocent people who had nothing to do with any of these decisions are being killed today. They are. And the footage is out there. I mean, I'm there is watching some footage. It's not stuff. blasted quite the same as the other side, though. Do you know what I mean? I feel like the war machine starts revving up. Everybody's like, get him, get him, get him. Republicans right now more than Democrats. Get him, get him. Biden, you're soft. Biden, you're soft. Do something. Come on, Biden. We got to get him. Kill the Muslims. That's what I'm hearing. 
let's not let's not just say kill the Muslims. That's not that's not that's not. Nobody needs to be. I don't think of that. I don't think that's the case. That doesn't need to be the case. Do you don't think that there's an uh, 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 sense in our country when I talk to people who take the other side than what I'm presenting, which is like, hey, we need to stay out of it. They can defend themselves, and I'm like, hey. Don't buy into the uh, war machine hype is what I'm trying to say. It's like, hey, guys, that, ha- that really doesn't have a bunch to do with us. Let's try to b- back off. I know we kind of caused it. <laughs> Let's back off. Then they say, well, you don't understand. You're defending these people. They do not treat women. Kelly, you don't get it. They don't treat women well. I hear this. I've heard this over the past few days from people who lean Republican, who I love, friends, People I know, I've talked to multiple people, and they, they go back to that. I'm like, hey, why are you trying to demonize an entire group of people? That sounds... Well, is and like I said before, even... I mean, there are people in the world today who have hacked their neighbors to death with machetes, and I don't think they should be bombed, right? But we're dealing with an active situation here, which in the past, you and I as younger people would have said, kill them all, right? Yeah, certainly. Who are, and. I want to probably I, we weren't attacked this time, so maybe it's a little different. But pro- I can say, I can get behind what they're saying. I, I can understand where it's coming from. And I want to be specific. That when I say kill them all, I don't mean kill innocent people. Okay, but that's that, what happens. Well, the unintended consequences, yeah. right? Who bears the brunt? Netanyahu has said we are going to destroy Hamas. Now, I could definitely recall back to that emotion after September 11th. And I could imagine what people are saying and people are feeling. Because Israel is a nuclear power, right? They have the button. And would it be weird to me if he said, you know what, I'm going to target four or five sites with a nuclear warhead. And I want to be specific here. Nuclear weapons don't necessarily have to look like Hiroshima and Nagasaki anymore. There are ways they can adjust the yield. And I don't want to get it too much into how they do that, but you can make a nuclear weapon that just targets a building and blows up the building with the nuclear warhead or blows up the whole city with the same warhead. And then that building is like, you can't ever go in that place again type thing. There's radiation. and Yeah, I'm not saying it can't be remediated. I mean, we did a lot of remediation in Japan and those areas are still habited, but would that be an appropriate response? You know, the thing is, I'm I'm always hopeful that we get to a situation where there's no more Hamas murdering civilians. And maybe the military solution, I mean, that's the one that presents itself. You're hit with a military, you know, exercise. Obviously they're gonna destroy Hamas. Benjamin Netanyahu is not a big bluffer. People aren't like, oh, he's a softie. <laughs> he says he's gonna destroy Hamas. He's probably just joking. Well, he called up three hundred thousand troops. <laughs> and Three hundred thousand troops for a state the size of Israel is a, a, a big army. That's a big army, and the United States is moving warships into the region. Region now. I believe that Israel has the right to defend itself, and has the right to wipe out those who have said that they're going to destroy Israel. I agree with that too. That's their issue. Is my whole thing. Now it sucks. I I can't say that I'm not looking in my crystal ball and saying there could be a lot of unintended consequences here. 20 years from now, many of the people who are saying today, just destroy all of them. Hamas, even just take out Hamas. Maybe the, 20 years later, they're like, this war has been going on 20 years. <laughs> Maybe we got a little carried away. Maybe we shouldn't have supported that war. Well, you know, can we keep it to just Hamas? Can we keep it? I mean, is Lebanon going to be involved? Is Yemen going to be involved? Is Iran going to be involved? 
And so with with two major hotspots in the world, Ukraine and the Middle East now, I mean, that, uh, and you know, I, I'm not trying to be sensational. I'm not trying to be a fear monger here. This is the, this is the recipe for people getting involved that didn't mean to get involved. Hmm. And that's, that's concerning too, because, you know, the thing is we're presented with only bad options. And what is the lesser of two evils here? You know, I mean, yeah, Israel, there's things in Israel's country that we may not agree with too. Well, yeah. And, but here's the thing, like we've got, we've got to draw lines, you know, in the old days, your army went out against my army. We all fought in the Valley and the men died. The women cried. Everybody went home. Right. That's not going into villages and, you know, killing people who are innocent. Women and children. I mean, when you're. Yeah, I saw the videos. They're very bad. And they recorded on people's Facebooks, killing that person, put it above, broadcast yeah. it to all their friends. And there's, I mean, it's horrible when armies fight. There's, war has no, in my mind, war has no benefit in a rational Western society. There were some people who benefited from war in the feudal system. Mm. There were some people who benefited from war in other systems. There are some people who benefit from war in our system. There are definitely some people who benefit from war today. And I like to label them the military-industrial complex. And I don't think all of them are bad people. I think they're misguided. But they could look at me and say, yeah, but guess what? When, when this happens, you're glad you have a missile, aren't you? Because you don't want to go over there. You don't want your son to grow up and go over there. And honestly, I'd have to say, well, I mean... I'm open-minded enough to say you have a point. And you're living a good life here in the United States. Even if you're not real wealthy, you can live a great life here. You don't go to sleep worried about, you know, drone strikes coming at your house here in the United States. Right. And that, and you know, and that makes me even matter at Hamas because you know what? They just proved me wrong. They just, if I said, you know, we don't need as many missiles. We mm. don't need as many bombs. Yeah, no, I, I get it. That obviously, everybody, no matter what I say about this, what happened that weekend, this past weekend, was horribly gruesome. And if you talk about emotional pulling at people's heartstrings. Yeah. I mean, you know, they're, motiv they're mobilizing ships, um, United States ships. I mean, is my brother's already been on two carrier tours. Is he going to be over there? Wow. Now, I'll tell you, you know, that's what he signed up for. He's not going to flinch, you know. And if he dies, it really doesn't matter if my brother dies or not. It's somebody's brother. And okay. I shared that last time. He's like, you know, yeah, my brother that went to Afghanistan didn't die, but one of my friend's brothers did, right? And so it, in one sense, it doesn't matter if it's my brother or not. It's sure. somebody's brother. And is that a cost that I'm willing to pay? You know, and there are people in Washington and, you know, stereotypical, you know, Dick Cheney was the most stereotypical one of them. Sure. And, you know, I, I am sure he has a heart, but, you know, he was the quintessential guy who was like, nah, I don't care if a few Americans die. I mean, it's worth it. Mental gymnastics. I've heard guys like that a lot of times are real sweet to their daughters. Yeah, I mean, and I'm sure he's a great guy. I mean, yeah, to his to certain people. <laughs> but he he believes he sees the world in a certain way that says, "Hey, a a couple American deaths is the price of freedom." You know, we always heard freedom ain't free. I had a Vietnam from vet. Team America is where I heard that. I had a Vietnam vet tell me that freedom's not. Oh, okay. And you know what? He was driving his uh, his electric, you know, scooter wheel wheel wheelchair basically. And he had been injured in Vietnam. And he was telling me this in 2014. He's injured. And, like, and he looks at me and says, yeah, freedom ain't free. I'm like, yeah. 
I mean, he's been paying a bigger price than I'll ever imagine. And what did his time in Vietnam, I know this sounds heartless, but what did it really do? Well, I'll tell you, I had another Vietnam vet sit across from me, and he said, yeah, I was over there for two years, he said, and I'll never forget the first man I killed. I'll never forget the way he looked. God. He said, I was out there in the jungle. And he didn't say the only man I killed. Did you ask how many did you get? No. But, you know, and he had tears in his eyes. And he, you know, he had lived with that experience. And, you know, um, it, it's disproportionate how one year of deployment affects the rest of a soldier's life. Sure. One or two. My neighbor did two years of Vietnam. That's, yeah. that's, then the rest of your life, that's who you are. I mean, that was 60 years ago. He was 68, 69. But I'll bet you would never even think of saying, man, that's 60 years ago. Get over it. Mm. Right? Yeah. So you're, 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 you're speaking to the gravity, the power, the, sub, the substantive value of war, what it is. It's a big deal. Not only to, it's a big deal to everyone involved. It is, but I feel like since we went to the volunteer army after Vietnam, because we learned a lesson, which was the American people does not like being randomly drafted. It's not popular to have Americans get killed. (laughs) Well, that's the thing. Especially Americans you drafted, right? Against their will. Right. They didn't want to go. And then you put them over there, and I mean, it's traumatic. Russia and Ukraine are doing that right now, is what I heard. If you don't go, you go to jail. We came up with the all-volunteer army. Which is basically the army's run like a business. They recruit. They say, hey, we'll pay you. They bribe the people. They bribe the people. Hey, you're having a tough life. You want to have a good life financially? Stability? You want a lifetime pension? Health care? It is. I, Come on over here. Woohoo. It is definitely sold. Volunteer. It's Woo, he volunteered. He just volunteered. Yep. Thank you for your service. It's definitely sold as a product. And the soldiers, maybe they get what they bargained for. Maybe they don't. Right? But... Because we don't have to worry about being drafted, we're a little more insulated from that. Sure. Now, I have toyed with the thought that maybe we should still have the draft. Someone was making that case to me the other day. Because politicians would really, really think harder about committing. Their kids were good. Well, or, or their constituents, if they got calls all the time saying, hey, I don't want to go. Yeah. Like, soldiers who've already signed up are not going to say, I don't. I, they know what they signed up for, right? Okay. And the thing Maybe is, there'd be less war. Maybe. I don't know, but we have not actually had a declaration of war since World War II. Like, there is a case that people make that all of these wars, and I do say they're wars, and we call it wars. I mean, that was, well, this the use of fourth authorization, you know? It's like for 20 years in Afghanistan, what do we call it? We call it the Afghanistan War. I mean, nobody's not calling it the war, and it's a war. Mm-hmm. Um, we went to, you know, battle with another country, wiped wiped out the Taliban. Oh, they're back, by the way. Um are they? Spoiler alert, yeah. Um, but yeah, and so, I'm. you know what, look, I know it sounds like I'm being critical, right? I'm not, actually. I, I don't care, but I think we ought to call it what it is. Like, the United States is an empire. We project force around the world. We're the biggest empire in the world. Probably if the world has ever H- History of the world, yes. Right. Biggest government, biggest yep. everything in the history of the world. We have manipulated other countries with money, with intelligence, with government you know we've propped up different governments we've taken down governments put up governments persians used to do the same thing Mm. you know you know darius the mede wasn't sitting there thinking okay i'm gonna appoint my own governor no i mean he would put governors from each region in the place you know if we don't like the government in you know peru we've changed that government before that's i mean you know some people would argue that that's why a lot of those countries are communist because they got tired of the united states coming in and messing with you know 
and putting up corrupt dictators. And then they all said, well, we're going to fix this. We're going to become communists. That is the storyline. Right. And Cuba, you know, Bautista, and then who was friendly with U.S., and then right. Che Guevara and Fidel Castro. And I'm not saying those guys are great. I, I hate communism. I mean, communism is one of the evils of the earth. But, you know, so it was being a, a corrupt system that puts people in place that is not beneficial for the people that they are over. I agree with that. Now, you know, what, what is the right answer? I don't know. I think the right answer is to encourage people to be less emotionally vulnerable to the media that they take in. And what I mean by that is, obviously what happened the other day, you know, the attacks on Israel is horrible. But I, I just think if somehow we could get people to be like, hey, that is horrible. But before we go off doing anything crazy, which I didn't vote for, what did you just say? Biden had a bunch of people. This isn't a democracy. They just had, what did they send? They've already sent ships over there and weapons already since this weekend. That's not a democracy. I don't sign off on that. None of, that's why I'm never voting Republican or Democrat again, because none of that is ref, reflective of anything that I want. Um, and, and I do think it's what the people want, unfortunately. So I guess it is a democracy. That's why I don't like democracy. The majority of the people right now say attack Hamas. Well, it's interesting. You know, I, I just read Plato's Republic again. And wow. It was a book that I'd studied in college um and it was interesting the second time around because you know in the greek in greek political thought democracy wasn't necessarily the best okay and you always associate it with athens and that being what where it came from so you assume that they were well yeah but it was more like democracy which was just a government of landowners right because they thought well if anybody could vote you know, and I mean, I can make that argument today. You know, if that guy downtown on fentanyl can vote, I mean, oh my goodness, I mean, he might not vote right. You know, he might not be thinking he can vote, but you can't. <laughs> well, I mean, I can, but you know, you can. Uh, I can. I can vote. Yeah, you can. Yeah, I, I'm not familiar with the laws. What can so, a felon do? Okay, so yeah, last time we talked about me going to prison, being a felon, and I did get my rights restored by Governor Ernie Fletcher. He restored my right to vote and run for public office. Oh, so you could. Okay. But he did not restore my right to sit on a jury or own a firearm. The jury thing, I I think you'll be okay with that, right? You're you're not like, oh, man, I wish I could sit on a jury in the middle of a cancel some flight or something. I used that one time. Um, I got selected for jury duty, and I took a copy of that order, and I sent it in. I said, I am not eligible to sit on a jury. I'm sorry. So I have argued to juries more than 10 times in cases, but I'm not eligible to sit on that jury myself. So, yeah, it's interesting. But, yeah, a lot of interesting stuff. I am hopeful that we will be thoughtful about what we do. And not just what we do, but the unintended consequences. That's what what I mean, I guess. And I'm not saying that I'm anti-goodness or I'm pro-women getting raped and kidnapped or anything like that. But I'm glad you're you're not saying that. I put some thought into being pro that, but I decided to be anti. Um, (laughs) No, what I'm saying is that when we, it exacerbates the whole thing. Where we are like, oh, emotional tizzy, emotional tizzy, attack. And then it's not like we're going to attack them. And then they're going to be like, well, they got us. It's over. That's not how it works. Well, it's not, especially when you're dealing with people with ideology. Okay. So the interesting thing about, you know, World War II was they were relatively developed nations, Italy, uh, Japan, and Germany. They had infrastructure. They had um, religion. Russia. 
So, well, I mean, it, you know, we weren't conquering Russia in World War II. I got you. Okay. But, yeah. um, you know, Russia and Ukraine both have infrastructure, culture, etc. So they understand what it's like to move on after a war. A lot of terrorist organizations like Hamas, like Al-Qaeda, like ISIS, the only way to beat them is to kill them. Like there's no, hey guys, we won this battle. Now we're going to sign a peace treaty. You're going to go home and you're going to go back to that job you had and that family you had. They look at you and say, we didn't have a job. We didn't have a family. That makes sense. Our goal is to kill. That's it. Okay, but, but, but how has it been working out for us, our previous attempts at just killing them? Doesn't that result in other young men being radicalized, 19-year-old version of Aaron Murphy or 19-year-old version of Ryan Dugan who, who lives in whatever country and is down, let's be honest, young men are down for doing crazy shit. New 19-year-olds are popping up every year. They're then radicalized and they're like, my uncle got killed. So it doesn't seem to exterminate it like that. It's a huge unintended consequence. It's a huge recruiting tool for these organizations. That's, that's what I mean, yeah. That we do this. Now, one interesting thing is the way we beat ISIS was not actually in killing them all. It was cutting off their money and their funding. Okay. And then they fell apart and they went back to whatever country they, you know, had come from. And the fighters either lived to fight another day or hopefully learned, you know, just like with, you know, the reason I don't do drugs, it's also the reason I'm not a terrorist or an extremist is because I had like a better life. Like, I don't think that's a good life path. Hopefully they will say like, hey, I could, I could actually, you know, have a garden. I could actually have a family, a community around me that this would be better than just killing people. Mm -hmm. But that choice is unusually opaque in some places. And, you know, of course, everybody blames it on the empire. Everybody blames it on the United States. Oh, well, we, you know, I don't think that's true. I think that there are divisive ideologies that are out there that we have not encouraged that we have done everything we can. You don't think our involvement in the Middle East over the years has fed into any of that? The military-industrial complex that you demonized, you, you don't think that it has led to what? You know better than I probably. The Russia against the United States all across the Middle East with these countries, and we were fighting them, and we were fighting here, and why were we even over there to start with? They're not over here. You don't think that feeds into it or creates it? Well, I don't think it creates it. Not I, the ideology, maybe. But I think if you ask five people, you get six opinions, okay? okay? Here's the thing. I don't believe that there are very few times it's acceptable to pick up a gun and kill another person or a knife and kill another person. Sure. There is never a time when it's acceptable to pick up a gun or knife and kill an innocent other person. Agreed, 100%. And so if you said to me, the United States sent its soldiers, and I'll tell you, there was a horrific experience thing that happened there was a guy named robert bales he was a staff sergeant he took a gun and he he went uh, you know he wasn't supposed to he snuck off the reservation he killed 22 afghanis and he injured six more and they were civilians they were women and they were children all of them it was horrific he is serving 20 years in fort leavenworth right now and there are people who are petitioning to get him out all right he was a war criminal he was a terrorist he's a murderer okay now if somebody said to me, I'm from Afghanistan, this soldier killed my family, I hate soldiers, I hate the American soldiers, I would say, you know what, I can see where you're coming from. I can see that that would cause you to hate Americans and American soldiers. If that person said, and I'm picking up a gun and I'm going to go kill 22 innocent Americans to get back, I would say, you have missed you just lost me. all 
all rationality. There is there is no good in you. Okay. Take that a step further, though. You just made a case for Israel shouldn't even be responding to Palestine. So if Israel is going to kill innocents... They are. Well... I can tell you, guarantee innocents have been killed today. Today. So we're, we're going to make a couple distinctions here. I do not believe that any Israeli is justified in killing an unarmed Palestinian okay. and, an, and an innocent person. I don't think that Israel is going to say that that's what they're going to do. Now, you, you're going to tell me, well, what about all these unintended consequences you kept talking about, right? And that is a horrific tragedy, right? I mean, it's a tragedy that, in one sense, I think we need to look at long and hard because it's an impossible situation for a rational, moral person to deal with because if you don't allow Israel to respond, you're saying, oh, well, it's okay what Hamas did. Yeah. But if you allow Israel to respond, then you're saying, well, is it okay everything that happens because of that response? And there's going to be things in that response that you say, no, this is horrific. We, we can't have this. Mm-hmm. And this is the nature of our world. Um, and this is why people are always looking for, I mean, literally there are people are hoping that an alien is going to land and tell us how to live. There's people are hoping that AI is going to develop and, and somehow show us a better way. There's, there's people who literally think that we should go back to only being 100 million people on Earth. Yeah, I've heard those stuff, yeah. And Alex Jones tells me all about that. <laughs> well, you know, if a person has thought about those things and if they have a rational reason for believing those things, I'm not saying I agree with them or I would ever agree with, you know, I mean, I wouldn't agree with anything that killed people to get to that goal. But I would, I would hope I would understand those feelings and understand where they're coming from because there are things in this world that break my heart. And that's why I think that we should be honest about what we are as a country. Not to say that we did bad in Vietnam. Vietnam's over. Not to say we did bad in the Gulf War. That's over. Not to say we did bad in Afghanistan. That's over. Let's try to avoid doing some of that shit again. Well, or maybe let's do it more wisely, more targeted. You know, if we're going to, we did kill Osama bin Laden. And guess what? I haven't said, I haven't shed a single tear for him. Sure. I haven't, I haven't thought one day that I was upset about that. Nor have I. And and, and I'm not suggesting any of these people are righteous or anything like that. But guess where we killed him, by the way? Where, where do we get him? He was uh, out in his garden. He was in Pakistan. Pakistan. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Afghanistan. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying it was wrong for us to go in Afghanistan. I'm saying, Going there for 20 years, I mean, like, I don't think we got what we bargained for. I think he was like 6'6". Six, six. I saw the footage. They were watching him from real high up, and he yeah. was living in some little area, and they were like, that looks like him. And he was, I think he was gardening. He had a garden, and then they, they got in. And but what I'm get, I mean, we didn't get what we paid for. Okay. You know, we didn't get a benefit from that. We, True. We lost American lives. We lost a lot of American money. And selfishly, for someone like me, very selfish person I am, Kelly Patrick, it screws up our economy. It devalues our currency. Everything's just, the, the, the war machine keeps going. It's not good for the average person here at all. Well, and people, the, like the people here are the ones supporting it. I, that's where I'm, the disconnect is. I'm like, hey, I don't, I, my suggestion would not be somehow we say, Israel, you're not allowed to respond. I'm not an idiot. What I would say would be a good solution is somehow we need to say, sorry, Israel and Egypt, who's number two. It goes Israel, Egypt. Those are who we give the most money to in the world. And Ukraine, obviously, is probably creeping up on the list. We're stopping giving you guys all this money. Let's just try to worry about our shit. I'm pretty sure our currency is having issues. Our economy is not doing, you know, it's not as 
sustainable as you and I would probably like it to be, right? I would like to think that our grandkids will be able to live a, a, a prosperous life here. And if we keep screwing with our dollar and we keep issuing all this debt and doing all this reckless stuff, I don't see it heading in a good direction. Yeah, I thought we weren't going to talk about fear and anxiety and things like that. You're 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 dumping it on here. But, okay. Um, you know, the um, I think you know Marcus Aurelius said that he wasn't going to worry about the future because when it got here, he would meet it with the same weapons of reason and rationality with which he dealt with the present. And I think that you know we are throwing curveballs all the time, and it's unfortunate. I don't want curveballs. You know what? I don't want interesting politics. I don't want interesting world events. I want, a, I want boring leaders. I want leaders who are so boring the news doesn't even want to cover Though That's where democracy's uh, uh, <laughs> um, flawed. Well, right. You know who democracy gets you? Donald Trump. Well, and then Donald Trump's like switching topics and he's like, hey, I, I support the vaccines and then I love the conservatives and I'm pro-union and I'm anti-union and it's like, we don't know, but he's exciting. We're going to vote for him. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's exciting. That's what democracy gets you. There you go. Well, he's, yeah, he's a pro- maybe he's the product that our system has finally produced. But, you know, the, you know, the Canadian um, leaders, they do it all the time. They get all these little TikToks they're releasing about how they, you know, are calling out the speaker and calling out the, you know, and I don't even know who they're calling out. And it's like, these guys are making interesting media, but I don't know if they're making good government. I don't know. I mean, probably yeah. not. Probably not. A good sound, I guess that's back to my point of sustainability. And I know I'm not the nerdiest, best economist out there. I don't, wouldn't even pretend that I know anything really about the actual nuts and bolts of our economy. But I would agree a prudent, prudent decisions are not the popular ones. Prudent ones are the good ones. They're not the flashy ones. They're not the ones that people stand up and clap for as much. If you're making good decisions for our government, it's like, hey, there's a new... <laughs> I remember Rand Paul voted against a uh, memorial they were trying to build to honor the fire, the first responders for 9-11. And he voted against it, okay? <laughs> and everybody's like, oh my God, he must hate them and stuff. And I'm thinking like... Well, I think that's the type of thing he's supposed to trying to decide if it's a good use of our tax dollars. I think that's what he's supposed to be doing. I'm like, Wait, what's the disconnect here? Well, here's the problem. You know, once you bring out your credit card, you know, your your wife doesn't understand why she can't use the credit card when you just spend all this money on the credit card and your kids, right? Sure. And, you know, I think I think a lot of Rand Paul. I've talked to him a couple times. I Interesting. Think okay. He's always very... Would you say he's more liberal than most Republicans in some ways? Well... There are Republicans who don't know that the Seventh Amendment is in the Constitution. Okay. That's the right to trial by jury, by the way. These guys want to tour reform the world and make sure nobody can go to court, right? Um, which is the most anti-constitutional thing in the world because you're attacking one of the sacred pillars of our democracy, which is trial by jury, okay, for everything. And so any person, and by the way, I was at a Republican fundraiser, okay? Um, I had a buddy um, that his name is Nate and he was a year behind me in law school and he was actually the chairman of the Jefferson County Republican Party, right? And so he says to me, hey, Aaron, I'm doing this fundraiser, you know, breakfast, would you want to come? It's $1,000 a plate. And I said, sure, buddy, anything for you, you know, I'll go to breakfast, see what these Republicans are talking about. Bob Stivers, the, um, you know, Kentucky Senate leader was there and he was talking and I liked, I liked everything they said. I mean, it was good. Loved it. He said, all right, well, you know, what's going on? This person, I guess, next to me said, well, what do y'all think about tort reform? And I said, it's a bad idea. 
And I laid out my argument for why it was a bad idea in 30 seconds. The room got kind of cold. And there was this guy who said, well, that's this brother don't like, you know, people that believe like you and you're crazy. And I was like, you know, that's unfortunate because I liked a lot of the things you said before. But when I brought up the constitutional reasons why we don't limit access to courts of law, that was a non-starter for you. Now, when you go back to Rand Paul, I've talked to Rand Paul about that. I said, how do you feel about the Seventh Amendment? Now, fortunately, unlike other Republicans, he can count more than seven. Right? So he would be in a perfect, of the politicians, he'd be like who actually gets elected. But you saw him against Trump in the debates in 2016. He's like, um, I don't think Japan's a part of that Trans-Pacific Partnership, Trump. He's correcting Trump. Trump's like, oh, embarrassed. He goes, Rand Paul pulling at less than 1%, everybody claps. Rand Paul had to shut up because he just lost the argument, even though he knows what he's talking about. He does. And, you know, and this is why the Greeks were, you know, stumped with why democracy would be a great form of government. The problem is it's not. It's just better than the others. Mm. And, you know, there's a, you know, there's a case to be made for monarchy. You know, monarchy's efficient. You get decisions quick. Sure. But you get the wrong one and it's kind of bad, right? So there were, you know, there were five good emperors of Rome. Five good emperors and a lot of other bad ones. And the unique thing that I believe all five had in common was their fathers were not emperors before them. All the five good ones. Yeah. And so even Marcus Aurelius' son was horrible. So Marcus Aurelius is the depicted emperor who dies in the beginning of Gladiator, right? Okay. Purely fiction. And his son Maximus was a horrific, and in the movie, his son kills him, right? That's not historical, but uh, Maximus was a horrific emperor. Well, that part is true in real life. Marcus Aurelius' son Maximus was a horrific emperor, which is interesting that Marcus didn't do the same thing that I believe it was Hadrian. I think Hadrian appointed Marcus, but um, either way, Marcus did not appoint another emperor after him. He did select his believe is his brother his half brother to be his co-emperor for a while it's the only time this has ever happened and his brother was co-emperor for most of his reign even though marcus was always seen as the the alpha emperor um but as far as we can see he did not actually like being emperor which probably was why he's so good at it sure he never loved it he thought it was uh you know, oppressive and apparently the people in the court were always giving him a hard time People are not going to like someone like that. Not in this country. No. You got to have enthusiasm, right? They're going to like Maximus, who's going to like yeah. run roughshod over yeah. everybody and just say, you know, I mean, we're going to be great, you know. Um, so it is. It is a interesting problem, and I believe we have the longest running democracy the world has ever known. Mm. So how long does democracy last? Well, I mean, I don't know. What's the alternative? I guess yeah. So if it's the best one, and I agree. It is great to live here. I, uh, you know, I say things critical of the military and the government a lot, but well, wh- whatever we're doing, I'm living a great life. I have no room to complain. I can travel from here across the country. I don't need to show anyone my papers, really, right? I mean, I, this is a great place to live. I have no complaints about me living here, obviously. Well, it is. I love this country. I mean, I love it so much. And anytime somebody says, oh, well, if this happens, I'm moving. If this happens, I, I laugh. Yeah. I say, you know what? I would probably buy you a ticket. Only condition is you can't come back. <laughs> if I hear someone say that, from now on, I'm going to say, you want to leave? 
Aaron Murphy will buy you a ticket. Can I do that? Sure. I'll start yeah, tossing that around. But you got to give me a passport on your way out. You got to give him your passport on the way out. And they're like, who's Aaron Murphy? I'm like, shut up. You want it or no? But the thing is, you know, and I, I don't want to be critical because I don't think that's helpful. But I do think we should be honest. And there's a difference between somebody who is critical of you or honest with you and they want your good, right? If I came up to you and I said, hey, you know what? I noticed something you've been doing. It's probably not good for you. It's probably not helping you and giving the results you want. It's different than coming up and saying, man, you're so dumb. You keep doing this. You're, you're hopeless. Sure. You, you just, you know. And most of the criticism that people get leveled at them these days is in the latter, right? Like, just do away with you. Like, you're, you're taking up empty space. But I think that if we're honest about who we are first, and then we can be honest about who our country is and has been, our country is a city, uh, a city on a hill. I mean, there's a reason that people want to get here so bad. It sounds like RFK type rhetoric. Is it? Does it? Okay. Yeah, I've heard him use the city on the hill thing. He's like, we need to be the shining. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, Reagan, Reagan made a nice biblical reference with that, right? And the thing is, people want to come here from every country. Canadians want to come here. Mm. Mexicans want to come here. Chinese folks want to come here. People from France, Britain, all want to come here. Mm. And there's a reason for that. And I have talked to so many of my clients from other countries, and they said, this country is great. You can do whatever you want here. Because they can get jobs if they want jobs. That's a big part of it. Eco- economics is a big yeah. deal. They can move if they want to move. Have you seen the numbers of millionaires and billionaires in the world? And then how many of them are in the United States? It's wild. I forget what the details are, but it's like... Well, I'm sure it's... Some massive. crazy statistics, number percentage of I have 75% of the billionaires on earth live here. Doesn't surprise me. Because Something you, like that. I may be exaggerating a little. You know what is never going to happen to you if you're a billionaire in this country? You're never going to disappear. If you're a billionaire in China, you might disappear. Mm, okay. I mean, that's happened. Jack Ma disappeared for four months. Who? Jack Ma. Ant Group. Okay. Richest guy in China. Okay. Anyway. Disappeared when? Um, I think it was the last year or two. Wow. And, and he hasn't been found? No, he came back after four months. Now, was that Chinese re- re-education camp? Was, is he religious? No. He's Chinese. He, he was re-educated about being greedy, probably. Probably. Yeah. He was too rich. Mm-hmm. Does he still have his wealth? Um, as far as we can tell, he's got some of it. I mean, it's very opaque what's going on out there, right? Now, if Elon Musk disappears, he's probably on a bender, right? Sure. I mean, I'm just being funny, but... Well, yeah, I mean, it, we don't think he's going to be disappeared by the authorities, probably. No, he doesn't have to worry. You know, Mark Zuckerberg goes into Congress, testifies, and tell him that, tells them they don't know what they're talking about. He's fine. Sure. He's competing in MMA tournaments. Yeah. And so this is the best place in the world to be a billionaire. Sure. We need to keep it that way. And it's the best place to become one. It's the best place to become one. Um, Are you going to be a billionaire one day? Is that a goal? I hope not. I hope not. Um, you know, maybe I'll talk to you about that next time, but I have a goal. Okay. I have a goal. That's a tease. That's In the radio industry, that's called a tease. But I think, I think it's, good, it's good to plan your life backwards and say, you know, what is the goal here? And so a lot of people, if they're successful, they just keep wanting to be successful and blindly. Right. And so I think that, you know, Socrates said that an unexamined life is not worth living. I don't know that that's true because I think life's worth living in all, in all places, in all times and in all ways. Life is always worth living. But I think there is a point to what he's saying that 
if you do not examine your life, you're not getting something out of it. You know, Seneca said that life is long enough if you use it correctly. And so I try to try to think about that. But long enough. Okay, that's an interesting one. I gotta let you go, buddy. No, you're I appreciate stayed, the time. I said we we're gonna do an hour or less, and then we got I did have a couple things changed, so I was able to go further. But great conversation. I've gotten great feedback every time you come on. Well, I, and I will say this. Look, last time I came on, I was blown away by some of the feedback I've gotten. I, I've had people reach out to me and connect with me and on so many levels. There were little things I said that different people have really um taken you know taken as a, a connection and it's just been really humbling and really you know i i've even teared up talking to some of these people about your different experiences and the way that we've you know shared different thoughts and things along life's journey and so it's been immensely immensely uh, valuable to me just the way that you know even just coming on your show has allowed me to connect with other people and so it's always great to talk to you because i love you thank, thank you good love friend you too. yeah thank uh, you you know, we've been friends for a long time now. We have now, yeah. So. yeah. What I, I started training in May of 2016 is when I actually started training. My kids were there. I was already there in 2014. But Yeah. Yeah, so I really appreciate it. Always good talking to you. I hope to talk to you again soon. I love it. Uh, Aaron, thank you very much for coming on the show. I also want to thank everyone for tuning in. Of course, we will have another episode of The Kelly Patrick Show out soon.